Welcome back to the Tell Me Podcast. I'm your host, Ilya. It's uh, been a long-ass minute. Um, We had a great family holiday in Malaysia, visiting family and friends, getting some warm weather in, and just just enjoying ourselves. Uh, Now I'm back, catching up on editing these episodes, and so I thank you so much for your patience and for tuning in. I have a chat with Will Mohop, all the way from Portland uh, in the United States. Will is a copywriter, founder and the owner of futurecopywriting.com. Um, this one is a little longer than the other episodes, staying very true to the long-form conversation. <laughs> um, it was just nice to have this open conversation, just riffing off each other, chatting about a whole host of subjects from punk rock, uh, traveling, global events, uh, raising kids, psychology, entrepreneurship, copywriting, uh, you know, the list goes on. Uh, I'll keep this intro short so you can get into the chat. I'd also like to thank um, a special shout out, really, to Andrew Bustamante for introducing Will and I. Uh, Andrew is the founder and owner of Everyday Spy and the host of the Everyday Espionage podcast, which I uh, certainly urge you to check out. Please find Will uh, using the links below. So, as usual, enjoy the episode, and uh, I'll see you on the next one. Cheers. Uh, Will, thank you so much again for being on the podcast. And uh, and whereabouts are you based at the moment? Yeah, so right now I'm in Portland, Oregon, on the west coast of the U.S. Okay, nice, nice. Um, yeah, so just jumping right into it, um, as we were chatting around, uh, chatting about before. So yeah, well, in as much detail as possible, can you just you know tell me about yourself, your your sort of I suppose the the first sentence on the on the Will Mohop uh, story. The story is that I was conceived in Mexico. <laughs> That's not a. I don't like thinking about that, but <laughs> not that it, not because it was in Mexico. I just don't like uh, thinking about my parents conceiving me, although no, I am very enough. appreciative of it. <laughs> no, I hear the story starts in Cabo, um, but I was actually born in Tucson, Arizona, and um, that's a lovely little town in this great American Southwest. If you've have you ever been to the states, Ilya? I have. Yeah, I haven't been to Tucson though. That's uh, it's definitely on the list. Um... Yeah, Tucson is amazing. It's it's uh, harder to get to. I mean, they have an international airport, but it's always like it's always cheaper to fly to Phoenix and then drive to drive to Tucson or whatever it is. But Tucson itself is just kind of this hidden gem. And so I was born there. I grew up there, uh, or I lived there until I was about six or seven. And then my mom, me, and my brother moved to Las Vegas, Nevada, and then that's where I was raised. So I, was, I spent the rest of my uh, young years there. Yeah. Wow. Okay. That's a, I guess, uh, geographic wise, like, you know, it's, they're both fairly hot areas, but, but in ter- other than that, like, I mean, Las Vegas, you know, you think of it, it's this, just this crazy booming city and then Tucson, I'm not too sure what, you know, sort of the demographic. Yeah, Tucson is not a crazy booming city. Yeah. So what, sure. what was, what was that like that sort of uh, juxtaposition, if you will, like, um, you know, was it, was it a bit of a culture shock, you know, just moving even within the States? Um, I was pretty young when it happened, so I wouldn't, I wouldn't say that it was like crazy culture shock for me, 
personally. Um, Vegas is pretty much what I know. And I visited Tucson. Uh, I visited Tucson multiple times a year. So I had roots in both of them. Um, most people I do find uh, after moving away from, from the Southwest and moving away from Vegas, I do find that when I tell people that I was raised in Las Vegas, they have like a, a reaction and it's not always like the same reaction, but, um, mostly people are interested. I get a lot of like, what was that like? I get, oh, did you like party all the time? No, <laughs> no, I didn't. Las Vegas, living in Las Vegas is basically living in a giant suburb because uh, what people think Las Vegas is, is they think it's the Strip. And the Strip is a very, very small, very small part of Las Vegas. So um, I grew up in a suburb called Spring Valley and it's all the houses look exactly the same like imagine i've i think it's easiest to imagine las vegas as being a suburb of los angeles okay yeah that makes like sense. if you can if you can picture what like ticky tacky homes in los angeles looks like that's las vegas our homes look a little different than the uh la homes but uh stucco like stucco box houses with a um, kind of a reddish brick looking roof that are that's tiled and then every house pretty much looks like that every yard is rocks and palm trees yeah okay <laughs> and then it's all laid out the same man every neighborhood looks just like that yeah nice and, and what did your um your parents do what were, what were they uh, <clears throat> up to at the time so my dad was running his own business as a vocational counselor he went to school for psychology and then got his master's in rehabilitation and so he worked with um, lawyers to determine whether or not someone who was who had a brain injury was fit to go back to work or okay. whether they could uh, receive disability that kind of stuff so he was doing that down in tucson my mom when we moved to vegas i remember her working a lot of different jobs um she was i guess if we actually back it up when she was 18 she joined the army she yep. just left home. I don't even think she told her parents. She just left one day. And sure. then this, yeah. And the story I know, she drove from Tucson to Phoenix. And the story I know is she called her parents from Phoenix and talked to her dad and said, dad, I joined the army and I'm shipping out to basic. No way. That's awesome. Yeah. Yeah. So she joined the army. She was in the army for a while. I think she got out after my brother was born in the mid eighties. And then uh, after that, while she was pregnant with me, she was a prison guard at a male's prison, a federal prison in Tucson. And wow. so she's got some crazy stories from there of like uh, mafia, like hitmen that she knew that one guy like wanted to marry her. He was like this crazy mafia hitman or something. He wanted to marry <laughs> her. Um, she was attacked by inmates while she was pregnant with me. They swung a, uh, a mop at her belly. Wow. Okay. Yep. Yeah. And then um, that obviously wasn't working out. So she was like, since I'm pregnant and uh, going to have this baby, maybe I should be in a little less dangerous line of work. Right. So she got out, but she had all that experience behind her. So when we moved to Las Vegas, I, I specifically remember in those young years, her working armed security. I think she worked armed security at one of the hotels. And then, uh, at the airport or something like that 
And I have memories of uh, going to work with her. She would work overnight yeah. in this like dark, this dark like garage looking thing. And there was, <laughs> I don't even know what she did, man, but I was there. I remember that. And then um, eventually she worked for one of the hotels where she met my stepdad my current stepdad and they got married and uh, they've been together ever since. And then she ended up working for the uh, court system for family court. And she just retired. She just oh, retired wow. like a month ago. Yeah. What a journey that, that must have, I mean, like that's, that's pretty crazy to, you know, especially not to stereotype or anything, but like, like for, for a woman to sort of in the eighties leave home and just sort of sign up to the military, not even letting their, you know, her parents know, what a um, she must have had a real sort of sense for adventure um the mob i, I love that story about <laughs> getting going maybe, maybe it wasn't very pleasant for her obviously but you know that that whole uh no she said he was a nice guy it was a nice guy okay yeah yeah i was like is she, that why is that why you guys ended up in vegas maybe a bit of mob tie there <laughs> <laughs> maybe yeah. my stepdad is italian hmm. okay yeah no there we go we're checking the boxes now aren't we yeah yeah no <laughs> um the guy, the guy in prison, I think he told her that he had like millions stashed away that he had embezzled or stolen or something. And that when he was going to get out, like the, the invitation was open, but uh, you, yeah. So you noted, you noted like woman, young woman, she was like 18 or 19 when she joined the, the army. So young woman, mid eighties going out on her own like that. Um, I'm not sure how much of a sense of adventure it is, but definitely we come from a very matriarchal family Okay, yeah. uh, of strong women. So my, my grandmother is from Mexico and she raised four kids, three girls, one boy. And it's definitely like, I'm the youngest. I'm the youngest of our family. We got like 19 cousins or something crazy. Uh, I'm the youngest of our family. And so my grandma was always nice to me, but I hear stories. <laughs> <laughs> I hear that she's kind of a hard ass. Yeah. Um, and all the women in the family are kind of hard asses. And so my mom is not, she's not an exception to that rule. You know, she's, she's incredibly strong. She's, uh, kept us in line you know she had like my brother's six years older than me so when we moved to vegas he was like 12 you know so she's keeping a, a young preteen and a six-year-old in line while she's yeah. working sometimes working multiple jobs and we didn't really get out of line either like that was that was something you didn't do with her you know yeah no, like you get the uh, the old wooden spoon out so to speak <laughs> exactly it. So what what um what sort of what were what was going on at the time when you were a kid growing up in Vegas? Like what were your interests like? What was the what was the social scene like for yourself? Well, I, what it changed. So we moved around quite a bit when we moved to Vegas. Um, excuse me. I moved. Uh, it wasn't until middle school that things were a lot more stable. So between between like six years old and middle school age which I think is like 10 or 11 yeah it was we were kind of all over the place and my brother was like my best friend I did everything with him he protected me he used to beat up bullies and stuff sometimes he'd get beat up by the bullies <laughs> like <Yeah. laughs> but he would always he would take the beating so I could like get away you know yeah nice. um and then 
around so 2001 is when my mom got married to my stepdad we and we moved in with him and that's that's where a lot of the stability came and so at that time I started getting into skateboarding and I thought I was I thought I was a thrasher skater and like a punk rocker yeah I loved punk music and I loved skateboarding and I did that pretty much until my senior year in high school I stopped skating as much as I did but uh that was kind of my thing. So middle school was, I had lived close to the middle school. I used to skate to school every day. I hung out with kids like that were older than me. I always found myself hanging out with people that were older than me. Even like as a young kid, my mom would connect me with, uh, you know, she, when my brother was gone and whatnot, when he went to college and I was still pretty young, like I needed some sort of, I suppose, uh, like strong male character in my life, you know? So, so I remember a couple guys that she worked with this guy, Pat Black, who was really, really awesome. Just super nice guy. I learned a lot from him. You know, some, I'd spend like a day on the weekend or something with him. Um, and so there was that kind of thing, but yeah. So when it comes to middle school, skateboarding, hanging out with the eighth graders when I was a sixth grader and like going to their band practice in their garage and like when I think back like at that time I thought they were like the coolest thing ever yeah (laughs) like the band was called running into parked cars they made their own shirts and all of this stuff and I thought I was so cool with their shirt uh and when I think back like they were terrible yeah (laughs) just like a very bad band but it got me it got me into uh playing music I started with playing uh bass guitar actually the first instrument I learned was flute but we don't talk. We don't talk too much about that. Yeah, fair enough. That. If you're uh, definitely if you're in the uh, punk scene, and that's so crazy. That's that, that's funny that you're like, um, you know, basically on the other side of the world. To me, I grew up in Kuala Lumpur, in like I mentioned before, like in this international school that was like an American curriculum international school. Mm-hmm. But um, yeah, so 2001, 2002, uh, for me, it was yeah, I was in middle school as well, and I was in a punk rock band, uh, playing play, basically Blink One Eighty Two cover cover there music. There we go um for we used to I think my school used to put on this thing called the what was it called a midnight so it's like a middle school night every Friday or Saturday night and we were Uh the band that played uh you know (laughs) in between DJs and stuff that's awesome we were so sad we used to like make our own posters and then like hand them out to the girls in our grade and they'd hold them in the crowd (laughs) (laughs) but it was was one of those things it was just like yeah we thought we were like basically the shit and then you know, it's funny, you look now and I'm like, you could throw a stone and hit somebody super talent. Like, I just feel like talent is just like blown uh, up, just blown up. Yeah. Like, cause everyone, yeah. you know, I suppose you have access to things like you, t- you could teach yourself how to play guitar. You don't necessarily have to go to lessons um, and you right. just have access to so much information out there that you can better yourself. So yeah, like, you know, we wouldn't even, I wouldn't even even thought about competing with against anyone sort of in, in the current standard because we were just a yeah. bunch of kids who, who you know sort of got together every now and then to our buddy's uh house and and just played and uh probably sounded terrible but like you know it was like printing out tabs tab sheets to like learn new songs and, and, and that mm-hmm. sort of thing uh there was no youtube nothing like that so that that's hilarious that like you know you were on the other side of the world i was on, on the other side of the world and we could have almost almost had the same kind of childhood really but um yeah no, that we takes... could have been we could have had our own band man exactly right yeah <laughs> <laughs> running into park cars that's brilliant i'm gonna look them up see if they're still around or not probably not um (laughs) 
and then so what did you have like sort of uh, an idea of um I suppose you know like what, what you wanted to do in in life yet like as in you know when you were all sort of after high school and all that sort of stuff or was it no just, man uh, I still don't know what I want to do with my life yeah <laughs> <laughs> I don't know what I want to do I don't know what I want to be when I grow up yeah exactly uh, <laughs> um back then honestly no like uh I was I'm from that generation of watching a lot of TV, right? So there was a lot of TV growing up. I remember Saturday mornings in Tucson at my mom's house, waking up before my mom, waking up before my brother, turning on the TV and just sitting there and watching cartoons, you know? <laughs> yeah. And so I, I think that kind of influenced something. So when it comes down to it, I think back, uh, when I think back on my life, specifically in regards to how did I end up where I am career-wise, I never had the thing that I wanted to do. For a long time, it was like, I want to be a musician. Yeah. I wanted, yeah, I, I think that's the closest thing. Like at that time, like I got really into playing guitar and I got really into music and I, I still am. Like I love all kinds of music. I can talk about music every day of my life and never get tired of it. And at that time, I really wanted to be a musician, uh, like a, specifically, I wanted to be a famous musician. Um, oh, it's always a good start. <laughs> right. You know, these were all, these were the people I looked up to. I watched a lot of MTV. I watched a lot of Fuse um, when I, especially when I was more into punk and, and emo and screamo and metal and all of that stuff. Um, and so I think even into college, I was like still holding out hope that <laughs> one day I'd do it. My problem was I was never really driven to do anything about it. Like I wanted it, but I didn't act on it. You know, yeah. I played music. I recorded music. I have a lot of recordings from high school, which are just terrible to listen to. But like <laughs> one of like my favorite gifts ever was this, uh, this little digital eight track recorder. And I thought I was the shit, dude. I was like the only person <laughs> out of everyone that I knew that had, a, that had the ability to record something and to like like have an mp3 of themselves doing it and then i met someone else in high school who was way more talented and had way better recording <laughs> shit like they were using pro tools and i was just like totally deflated at that point <laughs> oh man but, that's hilarious yeah but like oh man see your brain I, I haven't really thought too much about this in a long time and so when i think back there like writing songs which were mostly just rip-offs of songs that I liked anyway <laughs> I got um I know you lived in Australia and one of my favorite freaking bands in high school was Jet I thought oh, they yeah. were the shit man they were so good I saw them several times and uh I thought being Australian was like the coolest thing in the world like the yeah. accent the the fucking just seemingly like Aussie surfer rock star lifestyle yeah that I imagined uh and when I was a kid I was like probably seven or eight years old I saw this uh documentary on tv about Cooper Petty Australia I thought dude it's an underground town yeah I was like I'm gonna fucking live there I'm gonna <laughs> buy a house in Cooper Petty in the underground in the fucking outback yeah that's it <laughs> I was, dude, I was obsessed with Australia. Australia and England were like, it was all, all Commonwealth. I mean, definitely me. like for that scene, like with the, with punk and, um, you know, the, the, the whole sort of rock scene, I suppose in England, um, 
uh, and then Australia, you know, in excess, uh, jet, like you mentioned, um, ACDC, like, you know, there's, there's so yeah. much great stuff going there. Plus you got the desert vibes. I feel like you've, uh, you've sort of, you know, been in this desert environment this entire time. Yeah. Do you think, you know, how you were talking about how you wanted to be a musician, uh, and specifically a famous musician, but there was never really anything to push you there. Did you live, like, was your life fairly comfortable? Um, yes. As, yeah. yeah. Yeah, I talk. I talk about this. Um, one of my clients that I work with, and just to catch at this point, whoever's listening, I'm a copywriter, uh, and so one of my clients that I work with talks a lot about the curse of the middle class. Is what he calls it. Yeah. Um, and it's this thing, this idea of living so comfortably and not really wanting for anything that the drive to take control and make something greater happen for yourself not that it's non-existent and not to say, oh, well, it's, it's harder, it's harder because that kind of comes from almost like a victim mindset, which I, I try not to do. Yeah. But there is this aspect where like, if you look at most great people had very little when they started and they kicked ass and made something amazing, you know, and then yeah. that's where their, their money and fame and whatnot came from. And so I do think that it played a role. I also, my parents are from the era of, my parents were, were also of that era, right? The, you can call it the curse of the middle class or the lie of the middle class, which was essentially get, go to college, uh, major in something respectable. You're gonna get a good job straight out of college. You're gonna get a pension you're going to retire and you're going to be able to enjoy your life after you retire. Yeah. And whether, whether or not it was told directly to me that way, in some ways, yes, but not so succinctly. Right. Like that was the overarching theme of, of where I grew up, how I grew up and the people that I was around my brother, for example, he, uh, he knew exactly what he wanted to be from a young age. He knew he wanted to be a pilot. Yeah. Okay. What kind of pilot? That kind of all changed. Like, you know, it was helicopter, it was fighter jet and then blah, blah, blah. And he ended up becoming a commercial pilot and he's got a great job and he gets paid really well. And, uh, you know, he is doing that middle-class thing, right? But there was something about it that like just rubbed me the wrong way. You know, I wanted to be a rock star. That's not a middle class thing. You know, yeah. that's not that's not like a go to college and become a rock star. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. You got to struggle. Right? You got to go through, uh, you know, your trials and tribulations and stuff. And, and like you mentioned, like, you know, if, if a lot of a lot of the greats, there's obviously probably exceptions to the rule. But like, you know, you hear stories from, uh, let's say, like Steve Jobs, you start in the garage and then you, you, exactly. you find Apple. Uh, you hear of obviously bands who struggle and play, you know, shitty bars and dive bars before they get found. Um, you know, athletes who uh, live in sort of in poverty, basically, but they've got this talent and then they all they do is obsess about playing, you know, basketball, right. for instance, and they become great. So there's like a, you could pick any industry and, and it's, it's, it's quite fascinating, really, because the, the one constant is that struggle. And I always equate it to like evolutionarily we you know only recently have had uh, as, as as the human species like comfort like you know yeah uh, go back 100 years even 200 years ago 
life wasn't this comfortable. Everyone was struggling. Uh, even if yeah. you were the nobility, you know, you, you, you still didn't have the creature comforts that you have of today. And so I think that's like almost deeply ingrained in us that in order for us we, to survive, we need. I am 100%. Yeah. I'm 100% convinced that we crave struggle. Yeah. And if we don't have it, we create it for ourselves. So I was, Portland's kind of a hotbed of political stuff, right? Like a lot of, a lot of the political arguments here, are pretty interesting. And um, so there was something about it that kind of bothered me. Like, cause I'm like, dude, we like, I'm surrounded by people that hate America. Like they hate it. Like they talk about how they hate it. Okay. And there were some, for a long time, I was like uh, in agreement with them about certain things. Like I didn't hate America, but there was a lot of like, oh, fuck the government. Like, blah, like kind of like surface level punk leftovers, right? Yeah. And then I traveled to Japan for a month and Japan's an amazing country. Okay. It's, it's very well developed. It's amazing. Uh, it's a rich country. I was in Okinawa most of the time, which isn't as developed and rich as, as mainland Japan, but I did go to Tokyo as well. Yeah. But when I came back to the States after that trip, I had this like realization that I think had been building up because I'd been to other places much poorer than Japan. Like I'd been to Belize, I'd been to Bermuda, I've been to a lot of places in the Caribbean. And, uh, but when I got back from Japan, it was like something something had switched in my mind. And I was like, I'm really fucking glad I was born in America. Like we have an individualist culture where I can be a rock star if I want to, like if I want to drive myself and do it and all of that, like I could be a rock star and I'm, yeah. and I'm actually going to be celebrated for being different, right? For yeah. like actually be celebrated for standing out. Yeah. And Japan's the exact opposite, man. Like no, no hate on Japanese culture whatsoever, but like, that's not for me, dude. Like I, I had this one experience where I was in a subway and uh, <laughs> I got separated from my wife and my mother-in-law. And I was separated by a gang of like 15 Japanese businessmen who were all wearing the same suit, holding the same briefcase. Have, they had the same haircut. And I'm like, what the fuck is he? I'm like, I'm like in the twilight zone right now. Yeah, and on? yeah, and uh and the doors open, like we're crammed in there. I'm crammed up against the, the double doors and they're like pushing into me. No acknowledgement of the fact that they're like on my shit and on each other's shit. Like there's, there's a complete like disconnect from the fact that you are incredibly crowded, right? Yeah. Which is a difference in, in the US. We have so much space, man. We're used to like six feet of, of personal yeah. space, right? Personal space, yeah, exactly. Um, anyway, so the doors open and this was the stop for the businessmen and they just fucking ran my shit over like no excuse me no pardon me no nothing like they were just like boop, boop. and i i like had to like crawl out of the way and then run back in before the doors closed and that was such a weird experience to me because i'm like so in the states most people would say excuse me yeah and that's just that's a, it's just such a small cultural difference but i'm just thinking like dude, that like sucked. <laughs> like I didn't like feeling like I was getting run over by people who didn't have a single care for what happened to me. Yeah. And then if you think, uh, I'm actually interested in hearing what you have to say about this. I I've seen these videos of people's uh, impersonations of Americans. 
and from across the world, like people from all, all over different countries, what did they think, like if they were to impersonate American, what's it like? And something that's in common is they're very polite. They're loud, yeah. they're obnoxious, but they're, hey, how are you doing? Yeah. You know, and I'm like, yeah, it's not fucking like that in Japan, dude. No, no, that's right, yeah. That's funny, so, yeah. Go ahead, go ahead. I, just, no, I was, I was, I was just gonna. No, that, that, that's, that's, that's such a cool, um, so let's break it down as well like so um portland oregon very different to las vegas very different to tucson like uh just in terms of uh politics in terms of the the makeup of 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 people i think um and this is for me as a complete outsider and 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 i don't get i don't like to get too political on the podcast because number one it's something that you know i have zero control over the politics in america so i'm not gonna like you know have my opinion but you know whatever but um over obviously since i suppose like the blm movement and stuff portland has kind of made huge news around the world uh yeah. for for a lot of things from um you know the the police um sort of uh is it like called the abolitionist movement like where you know you, you they want yeah, to they want to the police yeah, yeah. the police the chaz being stood up for a couple of weeks there and uh, absolutely yeah. it looked you know from the outside looking and i don't know if this is just mainstream media making it look uh worse than it actually was but it looked like a scene from like escape from alcatraz or something you know like or uh, Escape from L.A., whatever the, the uh, Kurt Russell movies were. But, um, yeah, so uh, that, that what made you move, number one, to, to, to Portland, first of all? Yeah, so um, Portland totally was an absolute shithole during the pandemic. Okay, yeah, way. that's from, yeah, that's from like, local, what? everyone, so I'm, I'm not putting <laughs> any words there. <laughs> um, it, it, yeah, there's a lot that we can get into that. I don't... I also don't like to get too political about things and and i used to be really into it but just like you said like you don't have any control over american politics dude i don't have any control over american <laughs> politics and i'm a fucking voter here that's you it. know and why why so, waste your energy like you know there's there's exactly. so much more important stuff to worry about well yeah to, to focus on and i'm not saying politics isn't important because obviously it, there's a lot of decision making that affects everyone and you know especially yeah. in a country like america where every vote does count but in the grand scheme of things, it's a system that's in place, uh, you know, and it's going to be in place for a while. So yeah, let's, yeah. let's not harp on too much about that. But yeah, like so I, w- I was a police officer, obviously. And like for me watching all that unfold, and I'm like, what are they talking about? Like defund the police? Like, yeah, like, that, like to me, I'm like, if you've got issues, it's because it's generally speaking a lack of training, leadership, equipment, you know, yeah. it's, taking away funding, I don't think is going to help the cause but that was just we, my opinion. Yeah, we've done some pretty interesting things here. I mean, like we did defund the police. Like that was the thing that happened. And then we saw murders like skyrocket, crime cr- skyrocketed. And then they're like, oh shit, we should probably refund the police. So then they refunded them quietly. And, uh, but they're having a hard time recruiting people. Sure, yeah. Like, I mean, no, like oh, people don't want to be cops now, you know? And um, so your question though was, was how did I end up in Portland? So this was... Uh, back in the golden the golden age before politics was like the center <laughs> of every conversation in the US especially in Portland so i was sick of the desert that was you had you had nailed it that between tucson and vegas even though they're different different environments and all of that they are both in the desert in the american southwest it's hot and it's dry and it's brown and i was like i want to change the scenery yeah. and we live in this crazy time man there's so much like 
I'm already enjoying this conversation because you you've already touched on on things that are about to that speak to what I'm about to say, which was the idea that like, dude, there was a time when if you lived in Vegas, you had no fucking dream of going to Oregon. Like the dream just wasn't there because it wasn't going to happen. <laughs> yeah. You know, like, are you going to trek 900 miles through, first of all, Death Valley? <laughs> it's called Death Valley, you know? <laughs> Yeah. And then uh, over the Sierra Nevadas where the fucking Donner party ate each other. <laughs> and then into like, into uh, Southern, if you like hit Southern Southwestern Oregon, then it's just cold and rainy and snowy in the, in the winter, you know, it, it's like, that wasn't going to happen. You weren't going to yeah. do it. Um, so we live in this amazing time where I could just do it. It was like, a, it was a two hour flight or an 18 hour drive. Like, yeah, let's do it. Right. Achievable. And so I moved here for college. Initially, I went to the University of Arizona because um, I for a long time had dreams of living in Tucson again. I was very I moved away when I was young. Uh, there was a lot of kind of bitter. It was, you know, bitter divorce between my parents. And there was a lot of tension pulling in both directions. You know, yeah. I lived with my mom, so I followed her rules. I loved my mom still love my mom but you know like she was my mom but then I had my dad who I saw a couple times a year and I loved him too and I miss Tucson I have all these friends there and and so there was a lot of tension of like where to go so I went back to Tucson <laughs> that lasted like four months and I was like fine Tucson kind of sucks, dude. Like I'm 18. I love Tucson. Okay. It does like Tucson doesn't suck, but as an 18 year old living in uh, East Tucson, going to university, like I had to drive like 30 minutes to get to U of A. I'm like, fucking Tucson sucks, dude. Like I'm 18. I'm trying to do some shit. Um, so that didn't last very long. And I moved back to Vegas for a couple months while I sorted out uh, getting, I was accepted to Portland State University, which is in downtown Portland. And so I ended up going there for about three and a half years. And that's where I graduated from. And it was fucking awesome, dude. Like I was in this place where it was, everything was green. Like <laughs> the only brown thing was like the dirt. <laughs> like everything else was green. Like it's like a lush, lush. Exactly. I had never... I had never seen anything like it. I learned later that the the forest, the rainforest that we have here, it is technically a rainforest. It's only one of seven in the entire world. Uh, it's a temperate rainforest. And they're all, uh, all seven of them are still different from each other because they're all in like disparate areas of the world, of right. the globe. And so this is truly an incredibly unique, rare type of forest. And I, I man, if you go like, you come out here, I will show you around the forest, man. You go out and it's like you step into a fairy tale. Yeah. Like if you ever imagine like Hansel and Gretel or you imagine like these old fairy tales, like this is the shit that they would, you'd fucking find a witch's cabin or some shit out here. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> nice. So it's this unbelievably beautiful forest. Um, very mild weather. Like the summers are great. The winters are kind of, you know, they're rainy and they can be kind of long sometimes, but you kind of appreciate it because it's this green because of it, you know? Yeah, exactly. It's green um, life. It's uh, definitely the complete opposite to, you know, the desert, obviously. Exactly. Yeah. And so I, uh, 
I went to Portland State and that is in, it's right in downtown Portland. I lived on campus. I didn't have a car and you could just walk everywhere. And so I was like, dude, this is like the fucking life. Yeah. This is like what I was looking for. Like I have all these friends here. Uh, I was, you know, meeting a lot of new people, going to all these different places, like like shit that I had never even imagined was a, a way of life in Vegas because in Vegas, it's not like in Vegas, you have to have a car. Um, and we'll talk about, I have a lot of memories of my high school days and what I was doing. And we can talk about that, but like you weren't walking anywhere in Vegas, you know, and you weren't, it wasn't like shops lined up next to each other that, you know, contribute to a certain kind of atmosphere yeah, it was like just like a sort strip of malls. Strip malls, yeah, I was going to say. Yeah. Yeah. So uh, it was so different. And I fell in love with it. And I absolutely loved it. And then after I graduated, I didn't know what I wanted to do. So I moved back to Vegas. <laughs> <laughs> I was like, well, I don't have a job here. And I don't, I didn't prepare for graduating. I was just yeah. like, this is what you do. You go to college. At college, you party and you study and you try to get good grades. And I got decent grades. But like, what do you do? You just go to college, you know? Like yeah. I didn't have any plan after that. And so I moved back to Vegas and I was in Vegas from 2012 to 2015. And in 2013, I met, uh, I met who, my current wife. I met her in 2013 and we ended up, you know, getting together and living together and then I hated Vegas the whole time that I was living there. And it's funny because I look back and it was just like kind of an ignorant, I was just very ignorant. You know, I was, I was very rejecting of, of things that I had, very rejecting of like the bounty, I should say. Yeah. Like everything's just kind of bountiful. And I was just very, like we were saying earlier, like you have so much and you don't struggle. And then it's like, so I had to create my own struggle, which was, I hate where I live. I, I hate my job. I hate everything about what's going on, except for I'm in a good relationship, you know? Yeah. And so I had this idea that things would be better in Portland. Let's move to Portland. So we moved, so we moved to Portland in 2015. My wife, bless her heart, is just going along with me on this journey. And, um, <laughs> And we came up here and she fell in love with it. And now I'm like, dude, I need to get the fuck out of Portland. She's like, Maybe, <laughs> Maybe I haven't changed. <laughs> you know what's um what's cool about that story is that um a lot of people I think you don't really like when you're in your life and you're living in Las Vegas and all you know is Las Vegas or all you know is Tucson or all you know is Portland, it's then very easy, like we were saying before, a lot of people speak superficial shit and complain about everything when all they do all you have to do really in the states because the states is so big and so diverse is just hop over a state and it's completely different yeah, like you did you, you you went to japan like you were saying uh to and, and you saw how completely different it was and i think on the japan piece because because um i went traveling in japan oh i can't remember when it was now but it was like sort of 2008 ish kind of time period but i, I again absolutely love japan but like you said, for me, what it felt like was like being almost like just in a machine and like yeah. the machine was going to carry on and it was going to go no matter what was in front of it. Every yes. now and then, yeah, you looked out of the machine and you saw little pockets of like awesome culture, um, you know, like uh, alternative culture as well. There's like obviously like I think 
like Harajuku, I think was an area in in Tokyo where like it's very beautiful had, there, yeah, yeah, and like the the sort of the punk scene is there as well, and, yeah. and you know people are are expressive as well, but it's not nowhere near the scale of um you know it's like underground, you know, man. The individualist is, culture is underground. There. Exactly right, but yeah, so the mainstream is yeah, you just kind of told not in a sort of maybe communist party line or anything but like total part to the party line yeah, um, yeah it's a very collective sort of mindset as opposed to like you mentioned individualistic mindset in in the states and in, in uh, most i suppose western cultures but yeah so like i, I love visiting it but i was same thing i was like ah, i don't know if i could live here just because yeah. you, know, you need that room for yourself and just to and i like personal space as well so it, it didn't like yeah. being crowned <laughs> into a train but like and then on the flip side, you know, like uh, visiting a, a poor country like Vietnam when when just after high school for me, again, it was, it was very cool to visit, um, but it made me certainly appreciate what I had uh, growing up in Kuala Lumpur and then eventually in, in Australia. But I feel like a lot of people's anxieties, a lot of people's frustrations and, and issues that they almost blow up in their own lives is really because of perspective and i'm like all you need to do is just have a perspective shift yeah like you said you know not happy in vegas hey what's stopping you from moving to to, to portland so you know like if you're if you're not happy in portland for a lot of the people who haven't been happy there for the last few years and you complain about the government move somewhere else like yeah you'll find a change yeah. go go to i don't know just within the states or go go move down to mexico see how people live down there go go to belize yeah. like you said pop out of venezuela they're not liking it there too much uh, and it's right. far worse they're coming up here yeah <laughs> and it's far worse than what you got in portland so you know like i yeah. think it's it's all perspective and and it's cool that in your stories what you did was you identified uh, look it's not for me let's yeah. move like you know it's it's not the end of the world it's uh it's it might be a struggle but you'll you'll definitely be better for it i think yeah well there's there's vices and okay a couple things i wanted to say about it so going back to to what what you were saying and what I was saying about Japan, the collectivist versus individualist culture, there's vices and virtues for both of those things, right? Totally. And yeah. I think everything comes down to a balance. Like you need a balance of both. And Portland is a very extreme place. Like they operate in extremes here. You're either extremely left or I guess extremely right, although I don't really see them that often. Like yeah. it's I see mostly extremely left here, but then, you know, you go to a place like middle of Mississippi, it'll probably be extremely right. Right. Yeah, you know, yeah. so there's these very extremist sort of, sort of things happening. And, and really the truth, like we all know, I mean, like every, every philosophy throughout human history worth remembering and engaging in talks about a balance like every single thing. And they all talk about exactly what you said, which was mindset, you know? Um, like Buddhism is very much mindset. Like actually it's, it's as far as it's a religion, but it's like really a psych, like a psychological way of life, you know? Yeah. Um, even when I think uh, of Christianity, like this isn't, this isn't in the Bible, but it is the Gospel of Thomas, which was a uh, apocryphal uh, piece of scripture. But there was this uh, quote attributed to Jesus, which said, uh, the kingdom of heaven is all around, but no one can see it. Right. That is a that speaks to mindset. Right. Yeah. Like if or fucking take it out of religion and let's put it on the Wu-Tang Clan. Wu-Tang Clan is like my all time favorite, like 
music. Like there's a, there's like three at the top. And Wu Tang is up there with like the Beatles, right? Yeah. And then the third one has to change. You gotta have one that's up. yeah. But like um, Wu Tang, I attribute my life trajectory changing to listening to Wu Tang Clan's music. Uh, and I admittedly and ashamedly discovered them later in life. It was like 2013 when I found them. Um, but they talk a lot about mindset, about like you can either live in heaven or you can live in hell. It's just up to you to decide. Like, are you living in hell or are you living in heaven? Which one Absolutely. is it? Yeah. And, uh, and so that was something that it, it took me so long to, to learn that, to realize that. And then even now, it's something that you have to continuously upkeep and uphold. Um, and so I've gotten a lot better at it myself. Like, in 20, 2012, 2013, 2014, when I was living back in Vegas, like, nah, dude, I was like, this fucking place sucks. I fucking hate Vegas. My life is terrible because of this. If I move to Portland, it'll be better. Like, if I have this external thing, it'll be better. Yeah. But really, everything kind of points to the internal thing. 100%. And so, yeah. And so that's, it's something that's something I think about a lot. And, and living up here now, I think I've found a decent balance between like Portland is not where I want to live the rest of my life. One, it's not good on me tax wise. Uh, they, they, the state government loves my money and they want to take as much as possible. So yeah. that's, that's one thing. Um, and for not really like too much of a good return, like our streets still suck. And like, yeah, the, the pothole is still there from 2008. Like, <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, and also just like, I, I see, I see also the value of being surrounded by like-minded people in general, like, and for me, what that means is not people that think exactly the same things that I do, whether that's politically or spiritually or, or philosophically, but I want to be around people that think similarly in the way of like seeking truth and challenging each other to seek truth along with like shared overarching fundamental shared values as well yeah and when I talk with people here man like the people that I know and I'm just like it totally in the wrong circles here <laughs> we're so different and I don't know if I'll ever find like a community a physical community community of people that think that way like maybe it's not tied to a specific place I've had a lot of luck like meeting cool people online right yeah. like getting connected through podcasts like this um Podca podcasters I tend to find like especially these kind of open-ended conversations tend to yeah. think very similar in that way yeah that the um, long form podcast has been sort of a, for me a game changer like years ago just because like it, it I don't know when that shift happened but it just like obviously certainly within my lifetime that it happened was things that used to be you know like your larry king style interviews which were like an hour and a half long whatever yeah. just just condensed down to like five minutes and you just, yeah. you just get science sound, sound bites, bites. Yeah. and then you know if, if you're a person that only that only tunes into a certain place all you're creating for yourself is just like an echo chamber of those sound bites yeah and i'm like the long form podcast especially with folks like joe rogan and stuff where 
you have a variety of guests from all sorts of backgrounds. Um, you know, you, you just have that perspective shift from just tuning in, like, you know, driving, driving in the morning to go to work. You're like, Oh, cool. I haven't heard this before. That's, mm-hmm. that's new. Let me go down this rabbit hole and, you know, do a bit of research and, and, and find out. And like you said, like just finding that group of like, for me, uh, I think it's ironic when you have places which are the extreme lefts or rights and they, you know, when you talk about like, Oh, you know, we, we want to promote diversity and stuff. It's like you on paper, you want like diverse people who look different and stuff, but realistically they might look different, but their thought processes and everything they it's say the is the yeah. exact same. So there's no diversity of opinion. It's diversity right. superficially um, on the external, but like, yeah, you, you're, that, and that totally rubs me the wrong way. Like I, I hate that so much. Yeah. And then you go back just to being a collective and towing the party line, like we were mentioning before uh, and yeah. you know, like, and places that, have that are your you know your china's your russia's um that that sort of stuff um so yeah like i i was i suppose in a sense i think that's what drew me to the police was it was a group of people that were like-minded enough we were all very different but we had that almost singular purpose and and what i enjoyed was i think the one commonality that we had was it was a group of people who um I kind of categorize people into different categories, which is probably wrong with me, but there's a group of people who, who call um, what's in the States who call 911. And then there's a group of people who are 911, if you will. So it's like, Mm -hmm. if you have a problem, uh, I'm going to call a service and they're going to fix it as opposed to people who are kind of like the, like the leader or the follower. Yeah. In a way. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So it was nice being surrounded by people kind of like myself who were the people who were there to solve the situation. The people who, yeah, there's people who run into a burning building and people who run out of a burning building. Correct. Yeah. And so you had this huge diversity because I mean, you know, there's thousands of people in, 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 uh, in the police force that I was in, uh, men, women, black, brown, white, Chinese, you know, everything. So it was like a great mixture. And that was sort of the theme that I identified was, we're all there to run into that burning building if we had to. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and, and so, yeah, that, you know, it felt um, that, that was like the, the mateship, the, the tribal sort of aspect of things kind of clicked in. And I was like, this is, this is where I belong. Um, yeah. So I totally get you. And then since leaving, I've, I've been on that hunt again. And like you said, like online has been amazing, like connecting with all sorts of people, obviously started up this podcast. So like I've, I've been able to meet so many awesome people like yourself Mm-hmm. um and and you know all my previous guests but um yeah it just if if there's something i could sort of i suppose like impart on other people it's just like just to just make yourself a little uncomfortable step out of your comfort zone go listen to something you don't normally listen to start with a podcast yeah. and then from there have a conversation <laughs> with somebody you know like a, a real genuine conversation and and uh sort of keep your i guess you know your your opinions open but yeah, yeah. That, that's me being uh wearing my rose tinted glasses um so copywriting how, how did you get into copywriting so like you um at uni what did, did you study um no yeah so we're not quite there yet man we're not quite okay. there oh, yeah. chronologically yeah, yeah, yeah we're still trying to go chronologically here right yeah, yeah. um just real quick just to just to i guess put an exclamation mark on the end of what you were saying there it's total tribal tribalism is totally natural for humans like the vast majority of our conscious human history is tribal. Yeah. And uh, we're only now with the rise of globalism, which is what, only the last like 50 years, 60 years? Like it's the first time we're 
even flirting with stepping out of the idea of tribalism. Um, I get maybe you could say cities and civilization was the first time to flirt with it, but like that didn't really work out. Like when it came to cities, like, yeah, we could say, okay, so you could make the argument that cities were a flirtation with ending tribalism. And what ended up happening is our cities just became our tribes. Exactly. Yeah. Just and then warred against other cities. Yeah. Yeah. And then it was nations. And now we're talking about globe. So like, I don't know. I don't know if the whole globalization experiment will work out and unite the human race as a tribe, which we will then need an enemy. Yeah. I, I think um, we've, we're almost going, uh, and it's not backwards in a negative sense, but like, like, so like you said, like, let's break that down De- again. So like the deglobalization. Yeah. So I think COVID yeah. has been a huge yes. eye opener for people. Well, where, it showed how fragile the system is. Yeah. yeah. The supply chain. So, you know, you go 80% of, or whatever the percentages of medication is produced out of China. And then you go, well, China shut down. We can't make, you, you can't have trade. So how do we get yeah. basic things like medicine, you know, or, not basics are like life-saving things like medicine uh and then you extrapolate that out into you know microchips for your processors and 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 all that sort of stuff yeah but on on the uh tribal side yeah like you said like so you know obviously humans we would have started out with very small tribes and then they got bigger and bigger and bigger and then into cities like it's it's only natural for us to to fit into and because we're such communal species like yeah we have to fit into some sort of a group um but yeah, I think I think on the globalization aspect, I think COVID has certainly uh, been that eye opener. Things, you know, Ukraine, Russia at the moment, like uh, supply chain for energy. Like, I think countries yeah. are realizing, okay, we need to be a bit more independent again. Um, yeah. Well, know. I'm glad. I'm yeah. I'm glad I'm not a Central European in this coming winter. From what I hear, with yeah. with the whole uh, energy crisis that's going to happen, yeah. they got like war- warming centers in Germany or some shit. Yeah, absolutely crazy That's yeah so crazy germany's in like it's just such a tough spot um yeah just based on history like, it wasn't that long ago that world war one and two happened so like you know they were sort of frowned well, upon as a nation for those two events yeah and so i, I get that they're in a tough spot because they they would depend so much on russia or they do depend so much on russia for their gas but then they can't be seen to obviously make any sort of deals with russia even though right. they might benefit their own people you like we're seeing the effects of that deglobalization. We're seeing the knee-jerk reaction to the fact that globalization was super fragile. And you have people that are scared, and you have people saying seeing fucking other countries fall apart, like Sri Lanka and uh I think there's another one. But anyway, like Sri Lanka, and they're like, I don't fucking want that to happen. And COVID made it look like that, like Italy, dude. Italy was like fucked during COVID. Yeah, exactly. No, like, I don't want that yeah. to happen here. So then someone comes along that's like, we need to, we need to put our country first. We need to care about ourselves because yeah. how can you help someone else if you can't help yourself, right? Yeah, it's the old um, like airplane, uh, you know, oxygen mask adage, like put on the mask first before you help somebody else put their yes. mask on. Like anything else in life, like you, you know, you can't can't run into a burning building uh, like we were mentioning before, I suppose, without the proper equipment because you're just going right. to be a liability then. But yeah, like um, what we're saying for like, you know, things like Brexit, globalization as a whole, like, you know, bands break up. Like, you know, it's it's not new to us. Uh, like, oh. you know, like empires it's fall. a good way to put it. Yeah. You know, like the, the Romans. It's scary. Yeah, it is. Not it's, to say it's not scary. Not it exactly is right. scary. Yeah, it yeah. is. It is. It, and, and when you have uh, capabilities like nuclear armament, uh, you know, um, 
that 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 throws another massive spanner in the works obviously yeah i, I mean I, the, the again rose tinted glasses i don't think we're going to go sort of nuclear because I, don't think so um, I think there's just more to be had not i think there's so much <laughs> there's, there's there's enough greed in people that i think you can you know if, if we're going to have another war i don't think it'll be a nuclear war because you know if you if you just obliterate everything there's nothing to capitalize on at the end of it and i think economics is the main powerhouse behind it I think that's really, I think that's really interesting. I want to interject real quick. So um, one of the kind of main marketing maxims is that people are more motivated, people are more motivated to not lose anything than they are motivated to gain something. And you made an interesting point about nuclear war, which was um, greed could get in the way of nuclear war, where like, I can still take so much more. Yeah, but I'm almost I would I would uh, argue it's the opposite if it goes to nuclear war there's uh more than enough mutually assured destruction to go around for everyone right yeah that means everyone's gonna lose and it's like it would take like i i I think it would take utter like an action of utter pettiness to go to nuclear war like someone who just didn't give a fuck like throw like kim jong-un who's like i don't care dude like my people are fucking starving anyway like fuck it yeah you know for and then even then it's like maybe just north korea would kind of get wiped off the map a bit you know it but then I, but if I, it was I, like china the u.s like that's a different story but but i feel like again if we go north this is all hypotheticals as well but if we go north right. korea but, uh you know i don't i think greed wise i think kim jong-un probably gets a lot of stuff from all sorts of places that if yeah. he decides to launch, lob off a nuke somewhere, he knows he'll get nuked. So he, there go like say bye bye to all your nice stuff. He would, yeah. I think if he, like, if he were to step out of line too, like, I mean, they're they're mostly that's supplied a, by China. Yeah, that's right. It's like, but like you said, so China and the U.S. I think there's so much that's so interconnected there that I don't think that'll. It's happen. It's not in anyone's interest to do it. Yeah, and and that's why, like, when you see like uh, Russia, Ukraine, like yes everyone's supplying ukraine with weapons and training and stuff but that all comes at a cost it's not it's not free it's like i, I, yeah. I feel like everyone forgets so like no one's doing this out of the goodness of anyone's hearts it might appear that way like where because well, that's of, that's the marketing <laughs> yeah because of ideology you know like there there are partners like you know we want democracy to flourish it's like no these guys like yeah. once this is all over if it's if there is an end date somebody's paying the tab like somebody's got to pay the tab um yeah and and to that as well i i'd probably also just add that like we've been doing this since the beginning of time like it, yeah. it, we, it's back to that comfort that we've been so comfortable for you know a, a good so like well cold war so good 50 years of comfort that everyone's yeah. just been in in the western developed sort of countries i suppose i mean there's suffering everywhere in the world sort of you you, you just look towards like africa the middle east and all that sort of stuff but otherwise you know day to day you're not thinking about anything else you're going to the shop you're going oh god damn it like yeah. the you know bread's bread's uh, gone up by 20 cents or whatever it is you know like it, it, little things like that that like or, yeah. or gas has gone up fuel's gone up but like we've been so comfortable for so long that things like ukraine when it's brought to like this sort of into our living rooms again um i think it only invokes a lot of anxiety in, in a lot of people but like we've been doing this since the beginning of time like thing things get better things get more comfortable overall things get better but like i say it this way everything's changed but ain't shit changed correct like, yeah everything is still the same it's just 
yeah it gets better superficially yeah you know we can go to the we can go to the store like you said we can go to the supermarket buy bread buy meat we don't have to hunt that shit that's better you yeah. know it as far as convenience goes it's like everything gets more convenient convenience exactly yeah like oh like you so were maybe it's before, not better you know yeah. you, you're not uh like go back a hundred years and your trek from las vegas up to to portland you would have started with one group of people and ended up with another group of people basically yeah. and now yeah. you're, you're you're a flight away um but yeah so i, I think the like that, that convenience is um is something that's very new to us and because we haven't had that sort of you know uh in, I suppose that invasion kind of mindset in a Western country in such a long time, mm-hmm. this is really obviously uh, tr- triggered a lot of people. Um, yeah, yeah. So going back to we're uh, we're at uni and um, yeah, you're talking about okay. getting into yeah. in, in, getting into copywriting or or just before that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So so no, I don't even know. I've never I never even heard the term copywriting in at university. I studied psychology because uh, I was always interested in psychology i've always been kind of a a bit of a deep thinker and a deep feeler um i think most artists are and i suppose i would consider myself an artist in that you know i've been like writing since i was 12 actually over on the shelf over there i have my first thing i ever wrote anything on which is this old like 1980s uh word processor is like what the typewriter developed into. It's this little digital yeah. thing. And I used to write stories on that when I was like 11 or 12 years old. And so I've been writing a long time, writing music, writing lyrics, writing stories. Uh, I was always really good at writing essays in high school and college. It was where I, where I got my best marks. And uh, I ended up like, I, my you know, my dad majored in psychology and he worked in the field and I thought it was interesting. So I started studying, I started taking classes and it was like, I took this uh, neuropsychology class that like blew my mind. And I was like, okay, I want to study psychology. And so I did that. I minored in French, which I don't use. (laughs) (laughs) Um, After I graduated, I thought that I wanted to go to law school. So I sat the LSAT, or I wrote the LSAT, that's what they say, um, which is the law school admission test. And I did pretty decent on it. And I got into a couple law schools. And at that time, I was working as a paralegal in a a small Las Vegas firm. And then I decided I didn't want to do that. And I still wonder why I didn't. Uh, You know, I had excuses for it at the time. And at the time, my excuse was like, well, I saw how overworked, underpaid, unhappy, these not only associate attorneys were, but like even the partners were like, just living just a pretty shitty life. Yeah. And I didn't attribute it to the individuals. (laughs) I attributed it to the profession at the time. I think when I look back, there's a lot of fear that kind of guided my decision making. Uh, and I think I was just kind of scared of that commitment, scared of that change. And there's also, I think about this a lot, I kind of play with this idea that there's a real fear of success. And I don't think many people would admit to it. I don't even know if I would admit to it. I only admit to it because I I don't want to be the person that doesn't admit to it, I suppose. Yeah. But it's like, <laughs> 
there's something scary about success. I think because maybe it's responsibility, like success comes with a lot of responsibility. Yeah. You know, like if you make a lot of money, well, you got to manage that fucking money. And that's a lot of responsibility. If you uh, start a business and you end up having employees, well, now you're responsible for employees, you know, and making sure that they're paid, making sure that, you know, that you're treating them well and then that they're also doing their fucking job, you know? So it's just like, there's something about success that's really scary and I am paralyzing in a way. So I didn't go to law school. Although I look back now, I'm like, dude, I'd have been a great fucking lawyer. So yeah. maybe one day we'll see. <laughs> ne- never do it. Yeah. It's funny going down that rabbit hole. Like um, whenever, you know, like if there's like a massive lottery and like everyone talks about it, whatever. And I'm always like, Oh, what would I do with that money? Like I'd have to hire like a, a fund manager and I'd have to like yeah. really watch that. Well, I'm like, Ilya, you haven't gotten the money yet. Like, just fucking chill out, man. Like, 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 younger me would have just kicked my ass, like, caution of the wind, you know? Like, but I think yeah. maybe as you get older, as you see more, you, you get more experience in you, you're like, there's more ramifications and all that sort of stuff. But no, I, t- I totally agree. Even with this podcast, I'm like, I don't want any sponsors. I, I don't want to be sponsored at all because, like, what if it just, you know, what if it blows up? Like, it's being listened to in 44 countries. Like, what is that one guy in Nepal thinking right now as he's listening to this podcast? Like, like who gives a shit just have just have yeah. fun and do it like um but yeah no i, I totally get you that that fear I've, i haven't actually heard of that before but yeah that's a that's a good um point you made that fear of success i like that i think that i just i think it's a real thing man maybe i should write something about it but uh because it's very unrefined like trying to describe it right now it's i don't have i don't have the best like visuals to give to really fill in what it means but there's something about it. Um, well, okay. So another thing that I've been toying with when we kind of go back to like the lie or the curse of the middle class, the idea of like, go to college, get a job, get a, uh, you know, build your retirement, get a pension. Like you're going to sail off into the sunset. I think all it really does is program us to be complacent. Yeah. And when, when, you know, I, one of the themes going through this conversation with you is that idea of struggle dude people are afraid of struggle man Pete like people are afraid of it especially the people that have never had to struggle yeah I'm I was young when we moved to Las Vegas but I remember us struggling I was shielded from it by the innocence of a six-year-old mind but I still remember it. I still, and like when I can consciously think back on some of the things that we did, like there's times where, where we had to stay with people because we didn't have a place to, to sleep. Right. And so I don't have the emotional attachment to the fear or the, the responsibility of it, but I do remember it. And when I talk with people here, when I get like, if I'm talking with someone here and I get the sense of a fear of struggle, it's typically people that haven't really struggled that hard. Like, yeah. like middle-class, upper middle-class family always had food on the table, always had a roof over their head, always had good clothes on their back. And then they're the ones complaining about like the shit state of the world and complaining for other groups of people's problems too. It's another yeah. big one. It's like, okay. Um <laughs> it's like 
Go ahead. Go ahead. I, I think um, as well, it just brings brings me back to um, uh, the book Tribe. I, I read this like years ago. I haven't ago. read that yet. Yeah. Yeah. Check it because it, it's not a, a, a big book. Look, wow, it sounded like I've got a four year old and a two year old. So sometimes if I go back into like parent mode, no, it's, it's, not, it's not a very long book. Um, so it's, it's, it's a very quick read, but yeah, Sebastian Younger is the, um, the author and he talks about like the rise of the suicide rate in middle-class sort of upper middle-class families in, in predominantly white males as being, you know, overrepresented because yeah. I think because of that, like, and you use the word there complacent, um, where, yeah, you're going day in, day out. Like you, you're basically from, you, you can almost map out your life uh, change you know insert career here insert degree there but like you're you're just going about your life with blinders on and then like there's no real you know all your external inputs are kind of just mapped out for you in a sense and then you don't yeah. have to really adapt too much and then as soon as something changes like oh uh, like you know the, that's yeah. when the struggle comes in that's when you start polarizing and that's when you start hating the other person because you know yeah. you don't know how to deal with it because your 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 inputs have all been external and they've been all kind of been kind of relatively curated for you. I think we see many things at play in that scenario too. Like there's the idea of like your life is so complacent that if one little thing changes and it introduces a struggle you've never had, you don't know how to deal with that. No. Exactly. There's that. There's also like life is so complacent, what's the point? And then there's this crisis of meaning. And the more secular we get, the more we move away from spiritualism, spiritualism. I think that crisis of meaning gets worse and worse and worse because, you know, before we had, you know, we're tribes, wild humans looking up at these like stars that we don't even know what they are. And we're coming up with these mythologies to explain it. Like we gave meaning to it. Yeah. And when we started coming up with these religions of some something higher, bigger, better, more perfect than us, that gave a lot of meaning, you know? And I personally, I'm not like super into, I'm super into studying religion. I am not super religious myself. Yeah, and, yeah same. But I, I envy religious people, man. I'm like, like, I'll go to church every now and then, and I'm just like, I feel very different from everyone else there. I feel more cold, like observant and everyone is just into it, man. And they're yeah. like feeling like the spirit, the Holy spirit. And I'm just like, I wish I could do that. <laughs> that is like, I mean, honestly, again, like it's another sort of maybe parallel between me and you. Like we, I, so I grew up uh, in Malaysia. My mom's side of the family are Muslim and then my dad's side of the family being Italian are uh catholic and yeah. so like and i was kind of just like this like awesome stories like i i get mm -hmm. the point of religion in 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 the time because there's so much chaos so much like i suppose if you if you want to call it immorality that you wanted to put some sense of morality to it you wanted to make some mm -hmm. you know like you said like just some meaning to it and, and connect people together but i'm like i think with the advent of science i've kind of maybe just gone a bit too practical and that's just my personality but yeah like christmas time i love just sitting like when we went to italy when i was a kid like just sitting in the back of the church just watching people sing and like like this is mm -hmm. amazing like but yeah. i felt no attachment to it other than the amazement of almost like going to a, a concert really like you know that that sort of amazement like this this thing that brought everyone here together that's that's so cool 
yeah. but, but I could bounce at any moment. I don't really care. But like it was just <laughs> it was kind of nice seeing that community feel that you know that that um yeah the togetherness of people. Yeah, I think for me, I don't know how to. I don't even know if I know how to put it into words. It's like I want to believe in the existence of the idea of God. Like, well, I believe in the existence of the idea of God because obviously the idea of God exists. But I mean, I want to believe in God myself, right? Like wholeheartedly know this to be true uh, the way that you see like the faith of, uh, of a believer. But then there's part of me that has a hard time doing that probably, like you said, the practicality of science and all of that kind of stuff. But I also see, I also see the practicality of being like a full-on believer, like having that meaning, having something better and more perfect than yourself to aim for. um, So much better than like worshiping the state or worshiping yourself or, you know, worshiping material things that don't really have any inherent meeting and will dissipate with time yeah you know so there's something really powerful about the religious stories like the eternity of either whether it's the abrahamic god or the eternity of the soul or the eternity of something like because everything we know you know dissipates with time everything we know dies and so it's like i want that but then there is uh some sort of personal block as well so i don't know yeah i'd hate to think that like you know at the end of this you just kind of just you die and then the the lights go off and that's it like just from like i guess a selfish perspective i'm like oh there's got to be something else out there every every now and then i toy with the fact that like oh come on like maybe something but i'm 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 all for well if i die you know i'm in the ground in the form of ashes or i get buried and then it's just, you know, uh, it'll provide energy for the next thing that's going to eat me, whether it's a cow or whatever. Like, so I'm, I'm happy with yeah. that sort of cycle anyways. But like, it is hard, especially like, like I mentioned before with kids, like trying to explain, because they're into like, the, you know, they, we, we, they've picked up a few words like death and stuff. And I'm like, Ooh, okay, we're touching into these subjects. This will be interesting. I wish, yeah. I wish I could just go, yeah, look, there's a heaven out there. But like, if I don't innately believe that, you know, I'm not going to yeah sort of sugarcoat it for the kids necessarily but um yeah it's uh it's it's a definitely an interesting topic um and and something that like I, I see the purpose of it um but I love there's a Ricky Gervais has a quote where he says you know in, in a thousand years time if if all the religious texts were burnt um and all the all all texts was, were burnt and we had to rebuild all the stories would be different from the religious books but science would still be the same because you know like it's it's tested um you know you create a hypothesis you create that scenario you test it and then you verify it and that process will still be the same like you know one plus one will still be two um but you know jesus wouldn't be a jesus and all those stories would be completely different that's an interesting take i also don't agree with it yeah. And I have, I like Ricky Gervais as a comedian. He bothers me as an atheist. And actually most atheists bother me. <laughs> it, it, it's, it's again, like, like I think the extremes, like it's like, is, you know, I, I'm, I'm just not a fan of extremes because I'm like, why can't we yeah. just take a bit from each, each one? And make so it- here, let me, let me say, let me uh, jump into this real quick. Why I disagree with his position on that. And that's because we have hard scientific evidence 
of cultures, historic cultures with no contact with each other, no way to contact each other who tell the same religious stories. They're dressed up different. The stories are in different clothes. Uh, Carl Jung called them archetypes. Like we play out these archetypes all throughout history in all different ways. Uh, uh, Joseph Campbell, the hero with a thousand faces, right? The idea of the virgin birth is an archetype that has pervaded so many different cultures that have no connection to each other. Why? Why do we have this idea of a virgin giving birth to a savior Yeah, in religions outside of Christianity, right? Um, or like God is the father. And then there's also like a queen of heaven. Like these things are, are fundamental, uh, to use Jung's terms, like fundamental archetypes that have pervaded time, location, space in different stories. And then also the uh, Joseph Campbell identified the hero's journey, right? And that's what, when he did this meta-analysis on all these different mythologies, he saw the same story being told just in different ways. So we could burn all of the texts, maybe the name Jesus wouldn't exist, but but the the idea, the the concept, the idea of an individual who was sacrificed to bring salvation would exist because that has existed in countless religions in which they had no connection with each other. And I think it's because it exists within the human population. Like, you know, like you go to war, there will be someone who rises up to the occasion and is the hero. Mm, And then that story is told. So like, you know, we we were talking about like, uh, like paganism before, like, so explaining stars and stuff. So like you, you, I think in the most simplistic sense, you kind of look around you and your community and you go, oh, that guy, you know, forging that tool is hammering and making sparks. Oh, maybe lightning, you know, like the, the God of the God of thunder or Zeus or whatever could be that guy. Like, you know, just, just a bigger version of that guy. So it's like kind of like looking within your community and like kind of extrapolating and making fables out of those people. I think that's like spot on, man. Cause now that I think about, okay, so if we truly are in this crisis of meaning, which has coincided with this uh, secular globalization movement. Um, and now you have people, especially, so in the least religious populations in the United States is where you see it more like yeah. people, like not nihilists, you know, like people who don't, they have no care for the sanctity of life. You know, they care about their own life. And maybe they care about like some sort of cause that they identify themselves with, but like usually at the expense of some other group's life too, kind of makes no sense to me. But um, what I see is, okay, so I see this all the time here, man, like people ascribing meaning to something, claiming it to be a fundamental truth without realizing that they're just putting their own meaning on it. Right. And so I, I've seen it, did I saw it happen perfect. It's a controversial topic. So I'm sorry, I'm sorry to bring it on the pod, but it happened perfectly in front of my eyes. So uh, I'm standing with two friends. One is a white guy and the other is actually a Malaysian girl and she's uh, pretty dark skin. And she, she's uh, like real into the idea that America is racist. 
fundamentally and systemically and all of this stuff. And we're at a bar and I was, I was standing at the bar with her and it took the white bartender a long time to serve us beer. And he was serving all these people around us. And most of the people around us were white people because we're in Portland. Yeah. <laughs> and she's like, you see that? We got ignored because we're brown. And I was just like, oh, okay, drink my beer. I don't want to have this conversation. <laughs> and, um, and then shortly after that, I went back to the bar with my white friend, white, white man. And it took longer to get served. <laughs> Yeah, I, I actually watched him get passed over when he should have been next. Right. Yeah. And I was like, it wasn't right. Like they, it was a busy night. Like the guy's busy. It's one bartender, but to, to this person that told like this girl that I was standing with, like, she really believed it, man. Like she was like, it's racism. Yeah. And I watched the same thing, but worse happened to the white man who should have got served first, right? Like in the hierarchy of racism sure, yeah. ideology. Yeah. And he got served like super dead last by another white guy at that. And I was just like, but she believed it. And that's like, I, it took me a long time to like wrap my mind around that. But like, it's what you were just saying. You know, uh, we, if all these texts were burnt and everything, we would come up with new sort of religious ideas and it would just it would be meaning that was taken from the world around us which also goes to the point of like there's the existentialist idea that you create your own meaning and I think I align more with that school of thought like you yeah. create your own meaning for things if you are not conscious about it you're going to be worshiping something like we all need to worship something yeah and if you're not consciously picking and choosing what you're worshiping like you can very easily be led like a lamb to the slaughter because you can worship the state. That's what happened in ancient, uh, not ancient China. That's what happened in uh, 1950s China, yep. in uh, Soviet Russia, Nazi Germany. Dude, I was reading The Rise and Fall of the Third Reich, which is a great book. That one is a big book, by the way. <laughs> Just <laughs> yeah. Very small, dude. The paper is like Bible paper too. It's very interesting. But um it's just it's so wild to read like Hitler's rise to power and how like no one really took him seriously but then he kind of played the game of chess dude and he got the supreme power and by the time he got there man like just because he was in that position and because of the way that he's talking to the people like harping on problems that they're facing and then providing a scapegoat which is exactly what we see today yeah um they fucking like thought he was their savior. Like, like he, like he had such a low approval rating when he was kind of a nobody. Like people thought he was a crazy extremist. Yeah. They already knew he was a crazy extremist. But when he had power and he had control of propaganda and all of this stuff, like he became literally a savior. With, and like people fucking loved him. Yeah. Like Germans loved Hitler. And, and that's know? the thing. It's like, you know, if we go back to that sort of, Burn, burn all the books and and which is ironically what the nazis did they burnt a lot of texts yeah. like who are you going to write about you write about your savior oh hitler is basically yeah. jesus you know like yeah, in that yeah. Story. he's bringing us from the ashes and and lifting us up and you know like putting germany back on the map and blah blah blah, blah. yeah but yeah like uh it's that that story about um yeah your your bar situation with the with the systemic racism i just People use words like systemic racism. I don't know if they know what what it 
truly truly means because i'm like yeah. the fact that you are a brown woman in a bar able to order a drink like right there in itself there is like you you can't say there's systemic racism there might be individual yeah. racism which exists yeah, by yeah. the way everywhere in the world and yeah. even far worse in a lot of other countries i've seen more racism outside of the united states for sure and 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 like you know, like I, I haven't gone to like the deep south in, 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 in America. I'm not a black man or, you know, like I'm sure it, it, through that lens, obviously, yeah, I might, I might think differently. But it goes back, I think, again, people are so set in their belief systems and they're unwilling um, to even, you know, uh, appreciate an opinion. I think it goes back to the sort of the echo chambers that we live in these days where you, you, you'd only listen to what you want to listen to and everything else can just sort of just yeah. sort of piss off. It kind yeah. Of <laughs> um, yeah. But um, yeah. So, well, yeah. So, sorry. So you were a paralegal uh, yes. in, in the law firm. Um, so f- from, I'm kind of like just trying to make visuals of this in my head and I'm visualizing yeah. this guy who was, had this sort of punk skater movement through middle school and high school i was still kind of punk skater at the time too still wanting to be a musician did you feel somewhat like i don't know crushed is the right word but like being in a in a corporate sort of environment like a law firm yes 100 and that was a very that was a small business that i was working in it was i can't imagine what it's like working at like a you know one of the one of the actual big corporate ones like I was lucky that these were very, not laid back, but very casual partners that own the own the business. Um, so that was cool. But to to your question, yes, and it actually it further in the story is where I really really felt that because I did work in a corporation. Um, so after the paralegal stuff, so while I was a paralegal, I was like, you know what? I studied psychology. Let me pursue that. And I found this company that was like teaching basic skills to at-risk kids, right? And so I started working with them part-time and then I was really unhappy at my paralegal job. So I quit that and was able to start doing this psychology stuff full-time at this company. And then um, kind of fast forward a bit, like I wasn't doing shit. Like I was, I mean, I was hanging out with these kids and I was like helping them or whatever but like just in general in life like I was smoking weed and playing video games and eating bad food and like (laughs) wishing I was a rock star and not really doing I played in a band at the time um these two really awesome guys and you know had fun doing that but like we were all kind of the same man like programmed to be complacent like we were just floating you know yeah yeah And so it was around that time that my wife and I, who we're just dating at the time, but we're like, let's move to Portland. So we moved to Portland and I continued working with kids up here. I worked at an at-risk boys home. So uh, kids lived there, like a hundred or so kids lived on the campus, boys lived on the campus. And then uh, I actually worked in day treatment, which is these kids came from uh, home and they came to school on campus. Okay. And so I worked with them. I was a counselor for them where like, it's not like a therapist. It's not that kind of counselor. It's not a licensed counselor that way, but we were called counselors and we just provided direct support 
to the kids. And we also enforce the rules of the school. There's a lot of rules, like no touching and all of this kind of stuff. Right. Um, that was a pretty interesting job, man. Like you get these like very real serious connections with these kids and with your uh, coworkers. So what you're talking about, like that camaraderie, that brotherhood that you felt with the police force, and then you leave it and you're like, like, what are, what are you doing for work right now? Do you, do you have like a full-time job? Yeah. So I, I was uh, sort of a transition from the police uh, working in close protection just down in London. Okay. Uh, and then um, my wife uh, got sick. So I moved back up to where we are now in Aberdeenshire. And I was sort of like, uh, I don't know what to do now. I, I need to find work up here, but there's not a whole lot of close protection work up in Aberdeenshire in the countryside. Mm -hmm. So I kind of just went, okay, uh, did a bit of a pivot and went, what skill sets did I get from the police that I could transfer to the private sector? And what, what I found was things like risk assessments, you know, incident management, investigations, um, critical incidences, that sort of stuff. So I'm, I'm working as a consultant in like the health, safety, security sort of space. It's not super duper far removed from police for like because it's still uh safety and risk yeah, and that kind of stuff yeah. but i assume you don't have that same camaraderie in oh, this job that you, yeah right like i i enjoy my colleagues and like um and they're amazing people um but at the end of the day i call them my colleagues and i would have called my you know my my basically my family my blue family really was was you know we refer to hey hey bro that that sort of thing like yeah we're, yeah, we're yeah. a real they're your brothers tight, yeah yeah tight-knit family it's like a fraternity like a fraternity not not like a college fraternity but like an actual fraternal order correct yeah exactly um exactly right it was yeah it was like my second the family and sometimes to the point where it almost every now and then stepped above my my family family my wife and my yeah, kids because like, it's like you would put your life on the line for the guy next to you correct yeah exactly right and and I mean, it is selfish, but it has to be done every now and then. So, yeah. Yeah. So there's definitely something about the danger and back to struggle, the danger and struggle aspect of the job, right? Like if you work in an office, you don't fucking have camaraderie with your office mate. Like, because what are you guys doing? Like you're yeah. pushing paper yeah. and pushing pencils and all of that, like jockeying a desk Yeah. at the boys home, nowhere near as dangerous, uh, as like what you were doing but there was still danger like because we're dealing with kids like 50 percent of them were there because they kept breaking the law and this was literally like the last step before they were going to go to juvie for until they were 18 right yeah. okay and then the other 50 percent of the kids are there because of uh like quote unquote emotional disturbances and so they're like they're just super traumatized kids, dude. And they all have like fucking PTSD yeah. and like any little thing will set them off and then get fucking dangerous. Like, again, not to compare it to police work. Uh, a lot of people that worked there did go on to become police officers because there was some sort of uh, crossover there. But yeah. um, like the kids would attack staff or, and we were um, one of the few places that was authorized to physically restrain kids. So we had to go through all kinds of training to do that and de-escalation training so that it doesn't get there and all of that stuff but dude there were fucking times like i mean we had a couple cycle like legit full-blown psychopaths come through there and there's this i remember this one kid man he's he actually scared me like i i'm like six foot i'm like six foot six one but i'm pretty skinny 
And like, I don't have like a bunch of muscle, but like most of these kids were, you know, they're between 12 and 16 and a lot of them act hard. A lot of them are gang kids, but like you, you can kind of get respect from them by just holding them accountable to the rules and being consistent. Yeah. There was this fucking kid, dude. He was like taller than me. He weighed like 280 pounds. He was like 16 or 17. And he just had the deadest eyes yeah. that you can imagine. Just like, like he stared straight through you. And uh, he was, a, I think he was a gang kid, dude. I don't even know what he was there for. And I think he was kind of slow. Like in his, like a lot of them had some sort of uh, like mental um, deficiencies or like brain damage. And I think he was kind of like that. Like he wasn't the smartest freaking razor in the box. And, but he would get mad and he had fucked you up if he got you. And we held him one time and it was just me and this other staff member, dude. I didn't even know if we could do it, but like, he was like threatening us and all this stuff and we held him and it's so weird. So I really respect, I respect cops, man. I respect like the work that cops have to do because the little just like inkling of a taste that I got for it there is like a thousand times multiplied when you're a cop, when there's like real actual danger on the line, you know? And, and there were times like, like holding this kid, there were things about it. It reveals a very real human aspect of you. That's actually kind of scary because in our complacent middle-class society, you don't encounter these real humanistic things that come up, right? Like the fight, like the fight or flight stuff and, and the violence. And so just to give an example and I'm going to paint myself in a bad light. Like we held this kid. I fucking hated this kid, dude. Like you're not supposed to have emotions involved with these kids. Like fuck that. Everyone had emotions involved with these kids as a cop. You're not supposed to have emotions involved when you go out there. Fuck you. There's emotions involved, right? Like, yeah, it's a real thing. And so I, I fucking hated this kid. Like I hated him. I didn't want him there. He was dangerous. He scared the other kids. And when we held him, like when we actually got to hold him, I'm like, felt good as a fuck you you know yeah like Uh, i i have the power now bitch yeah it becomes that us and them sort of mentality like you know like it's survival yeah and then like as i'm processing it later i'm like dude i can't be thinking that way around these kids like (laughs) yeah it can't be like that like that's not good for the kid it's not good for us it's like breaking the rules it's all of these things but it's also very real you know it's like and and good for you for acknowledging that because i think that's where you get the issues with um quote unquote like bad cops is you let you don't have that uh power tripping people yeah you just don't have that self-introspection where you you go oh actually you know i shouldn't done that like that was kind of way out of scope of training and i think that humanistic um you know every feeling like you said like you know, whenever I used to like have to wrestle with a, with, with a, you know, whether it was a drunk dude, a violent offender, it was always once you're on the grounds, like, yeah, fuck you, motherfucker, you know, that sort of thing yeah. um, in that moment. But, you know, I quickly snap out of it and go, okay, sweet. He's in handcuffs. He's dealt with, let's move on to the next thing. Yeah. Um, but yeah, you, you could, and I think cops get painted in a bad light one, because things look violent because yeah. obviously it is a violent situation when you call in the yeah. police 
And like you said, if you're not used to seeing that in your day-to-day life, it looks extra, like it's just way it's scary. Yeah, it's yeah, scary, it's scary. Exactly. And then, you know, I think the way that the police have like kind of maybe done wrong is, is the communication. Um, so I've, I've seen it a lot more now with various police departments in the U.S. where after an incident that's been televised, very quickly their media team comes on and they do like a, almost like a play-by-play of like what's happening to walk people through what's happening as long as obviously it's not um uh you know confidential sort of information yeah yeah but i think it i think that's good because it just educates the public like you know and yeah at this time this is what happened like it's very systematically going through it whether yeah. people watch it or not i mean at least there's a resource there as opposed to you know just whispers going on around like oh my god the police did this and did this and then 10 people down the down the line it's chinese whispers and you know the police shot this guy for no reason you know it's just like yeah um, yeah but yeah like, like yeah and and you make these decisions with seconds uh you know like you like or I, not I even or not even like i mentioned before like a lot of the skill sets like risk risk assessments like i now can spend a month at a, at a client and and walk through and do a risk assessment as opposed to when you're working the van and you've got like less than a second to decide yeah. what you, you and your partner are going to do and oh wait there's a crowd there and oh wait the members of the public are set you know like there's just so much so many factors and yeah and i think it's really set me up for success in the private sector because um yeah that resilience building and, and all those skill sets that i picked up is just like absolute gold with what i'm doing right now but i would I'm- imagine what you did having those experiences set you up for success as well and other things I think so I definitely think so like I I never felt after that job I never felt like another job was hard yeah exactly yes because you're like this was like this there was physical exertion there was a lot of mental exertion because like the dude you, you nailed it with the risk assessment thing um where you're you're assessing like, okay, so there's this, this suspect or this perp and we're in a public place. There's people like if, if he gets away, he could hurt someone. Yeah. There's so many levels that you have to think of split second in the moment. If I I draw my gun out, there's people behind him. There's, you know, there's so many. Yeah. 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 Oh man. And I think about it, man. I love shooting. I love shooting guns. I have my concealed carry permit. And I think about that all the time, like, dude, like, it's such a responsibility. It's like, if you, like, I want to train more because I know, like, if I had to pull out and you're assessing that exact risk, like, dude, if there's people behind them, it's like, you need to be dead on, you know, no pun intended. But um, when it came to working at the boys home, it was, uh, it was same, same, but different because we're assessing like, okay, so can he hurt me or someone else? Um, Or, you know, especially another kid, um, we're assessing like the interruption to the the routine. So with these PTSD kids, which most of them, even the criminal kids had, routine was super important. If the routine gets fucked up because one kid's fucking off and it derails everything, you're not just going to have one kid fucking off. You're going to have like 10 kids fucking off. And then it becomes dangerous because then you have minimal staff to take care of 10 kids that when I say fucking off, I mean, like they could be melting down. They could be um, intentionally, like some of these kids would get triggered and they would intentionally like pick on like the emotional kids. 
to right. set them off because it made them feel better. It made them feel in control because they felt out of control. Yeah. Okay. You know? Yeah. So you're having to assess all these things. And especially when it comes to like, if you're going to restrain a kid, it's like, is the harm that I'm going to do to this kid by restraining him? Cause it does do him harm. Like physically he's going to come out with like bruises. He might vomit. Uh, but also emotionally, because he's like, you're going to damage the trust that you built with him yeah. by restraining him. You're going to re-trigger his traumatic fit because a lot of them have been beaten. So you're going to re-trigger his traumatic experiences, which is going to set him back in, in uh, re- uh, treatment, yeah, like uh, mental health treatment, all of this. And you're having to like measure this. And it's like, so is it better to hold him or not? Yeah. And then, and then they were like, had trouble hiring and keeping people. So then they're just hiring people off the fucking street who like, don't think this way. And they're just fucking, yeah. So they're just, just like dudes who didn't make it as a bouncer or something like that. Yeah. Like, and, and the other part is like, not just that individual kid, but if another kid's looking at you restraining him, They can get, re- yes, they get they, re-traumatized. Yeah, exactly. Dude, it's, it's, like, it's like, oh, well, Will, Will just like held him down. And what, what's Will going to do to me? I thought Will was a nice guy. And, you know, like, you just, you yes. the, the I can't tell you how many conversations I had that exact conversation where I held a kid and then another kid that I had a good relationship with was scared of me yeah. because I held the other kid in front of them. And they're like, you looked really mad, like yeah. your face and are you going to hold me and all? And it's like, dude, it just breaks your heart. Cause you're like, no, yeah, <laughs> I'm yeah. not, I don't want to hold you. I didn't even want to hold that kid. Yeah, exactly. I don't want to yeah. hold him. Like you think I want to get like his nasty sweat on. That's a selfish way of looking at it. But like, I don't want to hold anyone except no. for that one fucking big kid, dude. It just felt really good to hold him. Yeah. But like, dude, and, and another fucked up thing about it is some of these kids would intentionally get, so they're here, they'll be there for like two years and there's no touching yeah they don't feel human touch and if they're not at a certain point in their treatment where they can meet with their family and have home treatment or home home visits they're not touching anyone for like two years those kids will intentionally get held so that they can feel another person yeah yeah like to them it's a hug and and then think about how fucked up that adult is gonna be like when that kid becomes an adult and he's like in order to feel human like touch and love i have to do something wrong yeah to get in trouble yeah yeah man that's crazy i mean like I sit on the couch next to my wife and if I don't like, you know, if we don't make contact, she gets mad at me for like, after, after like <laughs> 20 seconds. So I couldn't imagine like two years of that's insane. Yeah. Um, yeah. I mean, but like, yeah, there is, I suppose there is no perfect system. It's just, I can't yeah. like, I have a daughter now. Uh, she's five months old. She's going to be six months in a couple of weeks. And uh, I like, can't believe that something so perfect can exist. And especially after working with like kids that are really fucked up, really traumatized, like have all sorts of brain issues. And then you see like, and I'm only saying this because I know you got kids, so I'm sure that you can appreciate this. And it's like, when you see like 
your kid and your kid doesn't have like any major issues uh, I mean maybe your kid's like in a wheelchair I don't know but like <laughs> two healthy yeah. kids yeah okay yeah you have like <laughs> this healthy kid that you're like I can't believe th that you exist you yeah. know and like and he feels so great I feel very grateful and I can see from like our parents sort of perspective and what we're talking about that cycle of continuation of the middle class. I'm like, yeah, why would you not want that for your kids? You know, like I want my kid to be as comfortable as I know. possible. I don't want you to be scared. I no, don't want you. Right. But my wife time, and I like, talk about that all the time. At the same time, I'm like, you need to know, like I can already see struggle. it now. Like, yeah, that sort of like, they're talking back more than I certainly did. And you know, like, so, <laughs> so it's like, you need to have a bit of struggle. So like, uh, you know, maybe incorporate that with, I suppose like other things like maybe like sports and music, whatever it may yeah. be. Yeah. Um, okay. So, uh, have, where, where were we? Where? Yeah. So, so we moved to Portland, working yeah. at this uh, this boys' home, and then it was I was burnt out from it. I was working a lot of overtime. Uh, there was a lot of responsibility, and it was super fulfilling work, but just like very emotionally taxing. Yeah. And, and I wanted something different. And so I got a job as a marketing coordinator at a private German school, a very okay. small school here in Portland. Um, they do good work, man. They were awesome people. I was around a lot of fucking Germans, which is just an interesting group of people to be around. Yeah, so you before the podcast, sorry, your your surname is is German. You were, you my surname that. is German, yeah. But like, actually, so I did the blood test, and what it comes down to, I'm mostly I'm mostly Spanish blood, okay, and mostly English. Yeah, English and Spanish is like very much tied, and then I have like nine percent uh, Native American blood from my Mexican side. Okay, right, gotcha. And so no, yeah. no German. Uh, I have. It's no. like it's like I do I do because my um. My great grandfather came from Prussia. I okay. found his immigration records online. Oh, cool. Yeah. Yeah. So I have his immigration records. He immigrated to Milwaukee, Wisconsin from Prussia in the 1800s. I suppose so, yes. weather-wise, it would have been somewhat similar, maybe. Like, <laughs> yeah, maybe. Yeah. So I, I've got a lot of different Europeans. So there's a bit of German blood in there. It's just not the most prominent. Um, the English blood, I think, comes from my dad's mom. Uh, okay. she was English and Italian and, and then, um, my dad's dad was very much German and I think probably English. Like I can't imagine having so much English blood without the Germans also being English. Yeah. Okay. Fair enough. Yeah. And then my grandmother, she was born in Mexico. Um, but her family mostly comes from Spain and France. Yeah. And then there was a bit of, um, Native American, Mexican, somewhere down the line. Mate, globalization right there, just within your blood work. <laughs> yeah, exactly, <laughs> exactly. So it's so funny because then my wife, she's uh, Okinawan and okay. and Black American. Yeah. And so our daughter is like just the ultimate mutt. Yes, yeah, that's like that's like my kids. Yeah. So I've got Malaysian, yeah. Italian, and then uh, my wife is. Uh, welsh english but grew up in scotland and that's why we're in scotland oh my so, god so she probably got, like, i can't imagine she got like a lot of shit for being welsh and english <laughs> and growing up in scotland yeah she probably did yeah i should ask her about that actually i might have her on the podcast next <laughs> but then like the kids they were born in australia so they got australian passports and now we're in the uk so they got uk passports so i'm just like oh man just when you grow up and somebody says where you're from, just say Earth, like you know, just keep, <laughs> For keep, real. It, keep it simple. 
<laughs> yeah, I, you remember that? I don't know if, if you got it. I got it a lot as a kid. Uh, what are you? Was the yeah. question. What yeah. are you? Yeah, um, I get a lot of. Um, you speak English really well. Like, oh. <laughs> <laughs> I thought you actually. I thought you might have been American, and then you had mentioned that you have uh, kind of a hybrid accent, yeah. and so it comes out a little bit more. You know what? Your accent reminds me of Elon Musk. Oh, he's got I, he, one of those very international accents yes yeah he's got that like south african uh north american accent yeah yeah especially when you say like got you kind of okay. drop you kind of drop the o into a u ish and yeah. it sounds spot on like elon musk yeah there we go oh, man. I, I think there somebody actually had mentioned elon musk comparing it to my accent and so you you're the second now and so, certain uh, angles, certain angles, you kind of look like them, dude. You're like the Malaysian Musk. <laughs> I wish I had the Musk money as well. And uh, all well, this. Or the, that that's fear a lot of, of responsibility. That fear of success. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah. Um, okay. Okay. So, so I worked at this German school and it was like, I wanted to get into marketing and then I was there and I knew more about marketing than anyone else in the school. And I knew nothing about marketing. So right. <laughs> I don't really consider it a marketing job, but I did learn, I got to fuck around on the computer a lot. And I learned uh, how to use like Adobe InDesign and Adobe Lightroom. And I like taking pictures now. So the Lightroom stuff really helped. Um, And then designing a bit of stuff for my website, like I used InDesign. So that, that worked out. Um, But I did it, it didn't pay well. And so the whole time I should mention from the moment that I left college, until literally this year, I was making like $30,000 a year. I was making like, it's the median income. I was making below the median income of the United States because the median income of the United States is like, you know, is it near the mid thirties? Okay. And I was making like 32 K for like the whole, from leaving college to, um, to till I started a corporate job and so when I started the corporate job which was my most recent job I bumped up to like 40 something k a year and I was a recruiter for this translation company it was a global translation company that had offices on three continents they're pretty big um I think they had like 2,000 full-time employees okay yeah and then they worked with like 30,000 translators across the world, like freelance translators. So we, that company, my wife actually still works for them. Um, we worked there at the same time doing different jobs, but I was a recruiter for them. And we worked with a lot of tech companies doing AI stuff. So I'd recruit people that spoke different languages to help either translate or teach AI programs how to understand natural language better. Right, okay. Okay. And it was an interesting job. It was the most money I'd ever made. So I was like, this is great. But then I also started getting the reality of the corporate world, um, which is like set up for corporate world is set up for like introvert introverts that like systems. Yeah. I am an extrovert with no system. I was the opposite of what was needed. <laughs> yeah. I like I have an opinion and I like to express my opinion and I talk a lot and I make friends with everybody and I make offhanded jokes and remarks and all of this stuff and I don't care who it is and you know I'm starting to rub like 
some executives the right way because they appreciate it because they're maybe a little bit more like me. I'm starting to rub some of the executives the wrong way and they're talking about it. And then my boss is like, you can't be doing this. (laughs) Yeah. And it's not like, I'm not like socially dumb or socially inept or anything, but it was a learning curve of like, like, I remember I had a pretty big blowout with like my boss's boss. And I didn't really understand it at the time, but there were a lot of things at play there. A lot of it was my own ignorance. And also um, I had like, I think most of, maybe most of us, or maybe I'm just saying that to make myself feel better, but like most of us have this problem of attributing malice or attributing conspiracy to something that can be explained with incompetence. Yes, okay, yeah. There's actually a name for it, kind of like Occam's razor is like the simplest answer is it's another razor. I forgot what it's I can probably Google it real quick. But um <clears throat> yeah, like you could probably explain the conspiracy with something that's just incompetence. It's called incompetence, yeah. Yeah, it's called Hanlon's razor. Never okay. attribute to malice that which is adequately explained by stupidity. Okay. Oh, I like that. Yeah. Yeah. I was up in the corporate world, like you guys are doing this on purpose and but but then also like on another side of it, I was like, you guys could be doing other things so much more, you know, efficiently. And my big blind spot was, dude, I've never owned a business. I don't know what it's like owning a business. And I actually learned something from uh, one of my mentors. He talks about the difference between the business owner mindset and the employee mindset. Yeah. And it's one of the most powerful things I've ever learned, man. And I, and I still struggle with it today. But like, when I say that we're programmed to be complacent, we are programmed to be complacent. We are programmed to be drones, dude, like worker drones. Yeah. Like, like I said, hive mentality. Yeah. The uh, biggest personality, like the most prominent personality, according to the Myers-Briggs type indicator is the I... S F J I S F J introvert sensing feeling judging. So the it's like 13% of the US population or something. The ISFJ is the backbone of society. It's the right. person who keeps their head down, who does what they're told. So the J in all of that, the judging is someone who likes systems, who does well with very clear rules. Okay. Yeah. The I is the introvert, right? So this is someone who keeps their head down, who doesn't need a lot of like one-on-one time, who can just execute systems. And the S sensing means that they're really good at processing information with their five senses, as opposed to N and others is intuiting, which means we t- typically use our gut and we connect, connect dots across right. like time and space. So the sensors, a sensor and a judger, an S and a J is someone who likes to do things with their hands like inputting data yeah, and follow systems, which is what okay. corporations are built on. Yeah. And introvert, introvert, meaning that they don't have to uh, interact with too many people. Like it doesn't, it, it drains them to interact with people and they're more energized by being alone on their own, yeah. their own thing. Uh, their only downfall there is the F, the feeler, which is someone who feels a lot and typically makes decisions based on feeling. So I, I think for these ISFJ people, like they're not happy in their work necessarily. Yeah. But often things like fear keep them from doing something else. 
Okay. You know, that's that's, a, a, an emotional decision. That, so yeah, that's, that's, I, I need to look into the, uh, the my rigs yeah. test testing. Cause I, I've, I've heard a lot of uh, awesome things about it, especially from, um, we'll chat about him later, but Andrew's uh, podcast, um, everyday uh, espionage, but yeah, yeah no, yes. Yeah, so what we, you, you continue. Yeah. So, so I, I am i I'm an ENFP. I'm kind of the opposite, <laughs> almost the exact, <laughs> almost the exact opposite of that worker drone. I am, I am the guy that sticks out. You know, I'm the guy that wears all black and then bright white shoes. Right. You know, like yeah, okay, yeah. <laughs> my wife hates it, <laughs> but uh, I kind of, I kind of stick out, especially in that corporate, um, that corporate field. And so for me, I love solving problems. Like I love solving problems because it lets me use my creative, like I have this natural creativity, I think, and I'm very happy doing that. And I'm in this corporate system that's like i don't want you to solve my problems i want you to do what you're told yeah just and the jump. more that i fought against it like the less opportunity i had yeah and it was it was my natural instinct to fight against doing the same thing over and over and over i mean if we notice a pattern here i was a paralegal then i was a skills trainer then i was a marketing person then i was a corporate recruiter like these i don't like doing the same thing over yeah. and over yeah i do different things right and so I couldn't take that, like, just do the same fucking shit, dude. I like, I learned how to recruit, never been a recruiter. I learned how to do the job within like two months. And then at that time I was out recruiting everyone on my, everyone on my team, like, which put people off because now you start looking like people get You're an jealous. outlier now. Yeah. Yeah. And like, uh, I was, I would outperform my boss. And then we would have like kind of some friction between us. And I think it was because of the outperformance, like kind of makes the boss not look as good. Yeah. And then um, I read, I started listening to Everyday Espionage, right? And I read Winning the Workplace, which talks all about like you're doing the wrong. If you want to get ahead in corporate thing, like you're doing the wrong thing. Yeah. You have to kind of like fit in. You got to be consistent. You have to make your boss look good. I actually started doing that. So I started applying uh, I don't, did you, did you ever happen to read that winning the workplace uh, ebook? No, no, I, I, okay. I have not. You have only recently tuned into um, the, the podcast, like the podcast. probably two or three episodes in um, after the, the Lex Friedman podcast. That's how sort oh, of yeah. I, I got introduced to it, but yeah. Yeah. So, so I started applying these, uh, I, I guess like CIA concepts to the workplace and in a matter of like three months. Okay. I was the problem child. Like people liked me well enough because I can be charming and like, I make people laugh and all of that stuff. And my cowork, my, my team really liked me, but like, I couldn't get past the boss thing, you know? Yeah. And, uh, I couldn't beat Bowser. That's what it was. <laughs> and, uh, I started applying these things and dude, it, I just like shot up, like within like three to four months, I was working uh, pretty much directly with the VP of our, of our department every single day. And then they put me in charge of the American side of recruiting for this major new piece of business that was going to be valued at several, several million dollars. And it was for a top, like top five tech company, Yeah. right? I, the problem, I went from problem child to that. Yeah, just hacking the system almost. Just yeah. ha exactly hacking the system, and 
and I hated it. <laughs> I was like, this fucking, this sucks, dude. Like, I'm still just doing the same shit. Like, I'm still complacent because yeah. now, now I have all this responsibility within this structure that is not making me any richer, you know? Yeah. And I, so I decided to quit because along that, along that path. So while I would, let me actually back it up real quick because in between, so I worked there for a couple of years and in the middle of that, I went on furlough during the pandemic. So during yeah. 2020, from June, 2020 to August or September, 2020, I didn't have a job. I was getting uh, paid, but I, I didn't have the job. I was getting like unemployment or whatever, but like, I would say, so it was funny because me and my wife went through this very similar transformation. Like 2020 was a shitty year like everyone can agree with that yes right and <laughs> yeah yeah and a lot of people like especially the people around us here in portland were like super depressed we're super like like it was really affecting their mental health yeah and and i was going on furlough and it was kind of scary and then like the george floyd thing popped off like george floyd got killed and all the protests and then here in portland every protest would turn into a riot at night yeah and they they're super proud of it here i think it's a weird thing to be proud of but they are proud that they rioted for like a hundred and somewhere between like 120 and 180 days straight every night and we had moved to an apartment that's like 10 minute drive from downtown because we used to work downtown but pandemic kicked off and then we started working from home yeah so now we're in this apartment where we're close to downtown and every single night we could hear the explosions from the riot where they're throwing fire they're firebombing the police station and like just like thinking of it that way was like so wild to me like people are like happy that that's happening and i'm like this is not a good thing guys and then yeah it was a and it was scary too because then somewhere in like the middle of their their rioting heyday they started going into the neighborhood and they were like mobs like hundreds and hundreds of people with their bats and their um molotovs and all this stuff were invading middle-class neighborhoods and disrupting at like 2 a.m disrupting these people's sleep because they're saying like they don't deserve to feel safe like that was the message you don't deserve to feel safe because of racism or something yeah and i was like shit man I was super paranoid. I'm like, they're going to fucking come here. They're going to fucking come here. Like, what are we going to do? Yeah. And they never, they never did. Thankfully, like when I thought more about it, I'm like, okay, in order to get to our house, they'd have to like, the only way is to go through the freeway. They're not going to march on the freeway. And you'd have to like climb a hill. That's too much. Like they all went to the east side where it's just flat. Just easier to get to. Yeah. Because they don't want to be too discomforted from it. (laughs) Exactly. Exactly. And so, uh, so I went on furlough. I had nothing really to do. All that was happening. And I just started reading. I started, I was like reading the Bible and I was reading the Quran and I was reading Taoist texts. Like, so a lot of philosophy and religion stuff. And then I started reading Aldous Huxley and George Orwell, um, Alexander uh, Solzhenitsyn, uh, Dostoevsky. Like I just read voraciously during this time and started like and listening to a lot of podcasts 
And my wife and I were talking a lot because we were, my wife was like, I don't think I agree with like this stuff that's happening. And it was a tough thing because everyone agreed with it. And when George Floyd was killed, for example, like I was one of those guys on Instagram. This is like the first time that it happened. The first realization that I had. I was one of those guys on Instagram that posted the fucking black square picture. I did it too, right? And and I'm scrolling through Instagram that day and all I see are these black squares. And I was like, this feels weird to me. feels like a dystopian sort of uh you know a bit yeah i mean i was i was just like because this was like two weeks into my into my uh furlough so i had like two weeks to myself to do nothing but like read and then this happened and it was very emotional and like i'm just scrolling through instagram and i just see everything's a black square and i thought it was really weird because it felt like without having all the facts about anything that happened everyone just lockstepped together yeah and that was weird to me I was like that like I got this sense of this feeling intuitive feeling of like this could be manipulated like this level of like people are emotional and doing the same thing like I've seen that happen before well it's it's the mobilization that I was like people can feel the way they feel and it's always been that way but like that immediate mobilization of people organized is it was just like whoa like yeah it it was literally like george floyd trigger point boom let's like yeah it was incredible so i don't at the time i was attributing a lot of conspiracy to it then i learned about hanlon's razor right and but like it was like you're right man the mobilization aspect was a really that was a, a big part of that feeling of like this is weird why is everyone doing the same exact thing why is everyone saying every post said the same words yeah no one said anything for themselves you know what's funny like again this is i'm not a conspiracy theorist like at all i i I love dabbling in it and but i'm like i'm I'm such a sort of maybe realist but you're mentioning the um was is isf isfj isf i just thought i just thought of that connection just now yeah so i wonder if you're gonna say you know there's a group of people who are uh potentially out of work unemployed they have their feelings which is that f like you're saying um and then there's the j where it's just it takes a couple people to be very vocal and Mm -hmm. organize it and then there we go like you've got your hive mentality that we tried about before yes and so you know, and then you add social media into the mix uh, where it's easy to mobilize people because of open platforms and, you know, groups and all this sort of stuff. So it gave yeah. people, it, you almost like re, you just retool the machine to do something else. Um, exactly. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. So that's a, that's a brilliant connection that you just made. And, and I hadn't thought about it before. Uh, Cause at that time I wasn't, I didn't know much about the Myers-Briggs and I didn't know the, those facts that I do now. Yeah. And now that I'm thinking about it and you say, it's like, fuck yeah dude that definitely played yeah. its role and, and then if you're like the opposite of that isfj then you know it takes yeah. people like your personality type to go wait that's not that's not quite right like that's not quite right yeah yeah and uh and then it was like all anyone would talk about so we like hang out with people and it's all they would talk about and they all say the same thing and then the media all said the same thing yeah. and then the more i learned about marketing i realized a lot of it's just a marketing message black lives matter is a marketing slogan and it's yeah. like, it's, it's, it's really fucked up when you mix 
actual honest to God, like issues with mass mobilization, marketing gimmicks. Yeah. And uh, yeah, so that was, that was a big, that was a huge change, man, because what ended up happening out of that was like reading more. I, I learned more about American politics and history than I had ever learned in school. I learned more about Western philosophy than I had ever been directly taught. And I was like, I learned the fact, the truthful facts that like, we actually live in the safest, most prosperous era of human history. Like the least amount of death, the least amount of poverty, the least amount of starvation, the least amount of war than ever before. And yet everyone around me is talking like, we live in some dystopian systemic racist hellscape. Yeah. And I'm like, the facts don't say that, dude. And then, and then I started running into the problem where, because I'm talkative and I like talking and sharing my opinion, I would be like, oh yeah, but you know, I read this thing. Well, that's, and then I would be attacked. That's racist or you're being racist or whatever it's, it was. And fake, I'm like, fake news or whatever. Like, yeah. Yeah. I'm like, um, <laughs> Or, or you're know. you're the conspiracy theorist now, as opposed yeah. to because you're not towing the party line. But like, yeah, like I mean, if we look at just just practically, like you you have to acknowledge the fact that we are in the best time, like we're continuously in the best time that we've ever been as a as a species. Like, yeah. um, in, in fact, like you know, causes of deaths now, the most of them are attributed to our lives being so damn good, like obesity. It's like it's because you have grocery stores that you can get your food instead of having to starve over winter. Yeah, you know, like yeah um yeah so it's 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 such a weird time to be alive it <laughs> is it is so much information but it's information and i know that andrew talks about this where information is uh, you know it's not really meaningful until you put meaning to it like there's yeah. so much information out there like what, is, what does it actually all mean yeah uh, until- and we're all kind of like in this digital age like we're all <clears throat> fighting for attention and that's yes. all you know marketing marketing is more important now than I think it might have ever been because we all have such crap uh, attention spans now and yet our attention is needed to buy and sell and so um, there's so much that just speaks to the fact that there's so much information out there that like even if it's good information even if it's like information that could save lives it has to be marketed correctly yeah. to actually get the attention that it deserves yeah. and then unfortunately we see destructive things marketed well i mean like uh social media can be very very destructive on the mind i think i think social media is something like facebook instagram i think there's a good amount of data and evidence that shows that it when used without restraint it is incredibly destructive to young people's minds. Yeah. But even though that data is out there, that information is there, it's not really marketed well. <laughs> so it's not really too accepted. We still, and not just young people, but like even uh, just our age people. Like when I I, I noticed, so I de- after the whole George Floyd incident, I deleted Instagram because I was like everything, like from everyone I followed, I couldn't find something that was like positive and I couldn't yeah. find something that was like interesting and not related to some sort of political something. So I was like, you know, fuck this. So I, I just like uninstalled it from my phone 
and I fully deleted my Facebook and then because it was the same thing and then I eventually completely deleted my Instagram too and I went like nearly two years without being on any social media other than YouTube YouTube was the only one I stuck to and I was a lot like I stopped smoking weed. I stopped drinking during the pandemic where everyone went the opposite. Like so many people were drinking a lot more. I stopped smoking weed. I stopped drinking. I stopped social media and I had never felt better. And it turned out that 2020 happened to be one of the best years of my wife and my, like our life together. And it was preceded by some pretty dark shit. Like um, in 2019, my wife got pregnant. We lost our first baby. And then we lost our second baby. Um, and then a third one. And so the first one though, was like violent because she had an ectopic pregnancy, which we didn't, uh, we didn't know. Yeah. We didn't even know what that was. Right. And so the doctor told us that she was having a miscarriage and was like, yeah, you could just let it like go its course or whatever. And so we let it go its course. And then one day she's at work early in the morning like 7 a.m so thank god someone was there um she stood up and i was driving to work at the time that this happened um she stood up and then passed she felt like immense pain she says the worst pain she's ever felt in her life in her abdomen and she stood up and she passed out like she fainted fell down could have hit her head it was a concrete floor you know luckily she didn't but and then someone found her passed out on the ground and they called 911 and then they called me. I'm in the middle of an interview and I'm getting a call. Okay. So I'm in the middle of an interview and I see my wife's phone, my wife calling me and I send it to voicemail because I'm in the middle of an interview. Yeah. And then it calls back and I'm like, Hey man, let me call you. Let me call this interview person back, hung up, answered my wife's call. And it was her. And she's like her voice. Like you could tell something's wrong. Yeah. And she's just like, some something's wrong. Like, you need to get here. And she, I like I hear all these voices shouting around oh, her. And sorry, like yeah. sh- and she's like crying. And I'm like, what the fuck? Yeah. yeah. That gut-wrenching and, sort of feeling. Oh my God. Yeah. And then um the ambulance picks her up and I meet them at the hospital. And they gave her fentanyl in the ambulance. So she's like, hey, my love, what's going on? Like coming out the fucking ambulance, dude. I was like, yes. I was like, uh, what's going on here? (laughs) Um, And she felt great when we were at the hospital because she's on like the strongest fucking drug known to man. And and then they're like, yeah, we think she's having an ectopic. Um, They explained what that was, which was basically an ectopic is... uh, the embryos growing outside of the uterus. Okay. Okay. And so, um, but we don't know exactly what, and they're like, we're going to have to do surgery, but let's start with an X-ray or an ultrasound. So we go to do the ultrasound and they see that she has a full bladder and they're like, you need to go to the bathroom. And they asked me to take her to the bathroom. I'm like, okay. So I take her to the bathroom and she's in the bathroom and we're alone. And she's like, I don't feel right. And then her eyes roll in the back of her head and she falls over and I catch her and she's convulsing oh, in my arms and like making crazy sounds like that still these very scary haunting groans. 
and I'm like screaming for help and I'm like holding her and like trying to rip the cord to get help and then all these nurses bust in and they take her so what ended up happening what turns out why this was happening I thought she was having a seizure they said no it's fainting and fainting can look like a seizure sometimes so that's that's why her eyes rolled that's why she was convulsing no idea so if you know you know um and what happened was the embryo got stuck in her fallopian tube and then it grew and it ruptured her fallopian tube and then she bled a liter of blood into her abdominal cavity so when she would stand up there wasn't enough blood to pump to her brain which caused her to faint yeah that was some fucking shit dude that was a crazy day so they did emergency surgery and they had to remove her fallopian tube um and they're like we don't know if the other one is like fucked up like this you can try so we tried to have another kid same thing ectopic the same thing didn't happen because we were actually able to catch it yeah and they they did like um basically a chemical abortion with like cancer meds which is a crazy thing i never knew yeah yeah and then we naturally lost another one and so we ended up doing ivf and that's how our baby is here in 2020 so that all happened in yeah, november well, 2019 that? Oh, 2019 that was november yeah. 2019 and so after she recovered we went on this road trip we went on a road trip to la where her family is to vegas where my family is and to tucson where my dad is and we had our dog we had this uh english mastiff and it turns out that would be our mastiff's last trip unfortunately but um it was just like this really peaceful, beautiful trip, like after all of this and yeah, a lot of like rethink, like, so all of this is happening at the time that the pandemic kicks off and then George Floyd. So our mind was already primed to go through some sort of shift. Like yeah. we realized everything that happened, we realized like the things that we thought were important, weren't important. Yeah. They were all superficial. It was all superficial. That's right. And like that we had been pretty much doing nothing with our lives. Excuse me. And, um, and so after, after my furlough, which is like September, 2020, I go back to work and cause I had that break. I was like, oh, this isn't, you know, isn't bad. And I started doing it again. And then again, it came back where I'm like this, I don't want to do this, but I also don't know what I want to do, man. Like I, like I'm and I had come to the realization like I don't fit in the structure the structure that is built around and accepts ISFJ doesn't want me yeah like unless I care to climb the corporate ladder and become the boss which I don't care to do that either like I don't know what the fuck I'm gonna do yeah and that's how I discovered copywriting so um so my mentor had a business and he was just like, I'm looking for a copywriter. Do you want to try it? I had recruited copywriters, but I didn't know really anything about it. Right. But I tried it. I'd always been a writer, which by the way, is not like a good indicator of someone being a good copywriter, but <laughs> it does help because it makes writing easy. But um, turned out I was pretty good at it. And before long, I was making... Uh, my clients a lot of money by like just dialing in their copy and like sending really hot hard hitting email copy and sales copy yeah um 
And so I started this business, Future Copywriting, and that's where I'm at now. So I was able to, uh, I was doing both. I was working at the corporation and like as a plan B was like doing my, you know, thing to work up. And that's how I was working with the VP and all of this stuff. And I was in line to take my boss's job. And um, she had told me that she was looking for another job and she'd want me to do her job. And I was like, cool, that's awesome. <laughs> okay. Yeah. Uh, and no one really knew I was doing this copywriting thing. And so it got to the point though, where I started realizing, I wrote this uh, three email series. This was the thing. I wrote this three email series and um, sent this, these emails to my client's list. And those emails made a lot of fucking money. And I ran through this exercise because my client was like, how long did it take you? Is my mentor. He's like, how long did it take you to write those emails? And I was like, like three, like an hour and a half to two hours or something, right? And he's like, okay, this is how much money we made from those emails. And we, and we calculated basically my hourly rate. Yeah. If I had said, if it was my product to my list and I did that for myself, it would, it came out to like nearly a thousand dollars an hour. Yeah. Yeah. If you extrapolate it out. Yeah. So, right. Wait, before we go, uh, um, going to the copywriting bit. So can you explain what copywriting is like the, yeah. for, for people listening? Because for me, and I'll just sort of maybe the, the dummies version for me is that it's sort of like having your client's um, message, basically capturing that, adding in a bit of psychology, a bit of, you know, like market research, potentially synthesizing all of that and then sending out a, a message to attract, you know, business. Is that yeah. I, yeah so you're you're very much talking tactics not everyone does that okay okay you're you're thinking about it the right way not everyone does it which is why there's a lot of bad copywriters out there yeah so copywriting fundamentally let's define it is uh written material with a marketing intention okay. so it can look and i say it's a very broad definition because there's a lot of different types of copywriting my business specifically focuses on sales copy and the reason that I do that, uh, because there's also SEO copy and there's content writing and there's uh, editorial. I do a lot of editorial as well uh, because editorial sells too, but there's ad writing. Like there's all kinds of different yeah. copies. So any marketing material that has writing on it, that writing is considered copywriting Okay. or it's, we call it copy. I don't know where that name came from. It's kind of a stupid name because it's confused with copywriting, like copyright yeah the legal aspect of copyright yeah uh and then to say like oh that copy was good it just kind of sounds clunky and weird <laughs> and what does that even really mean so but that's the world we live in so um i my business focuses on sales copy and the reason that i do that is because any business owner worth their salt knows that the only thing that matters when it comes to business is revenue. Business needs to make money so that it can survive. Just like, you know, humans, we need to, we need to accumulate resources so we can survive. That's how businesses survive. They accumulate resources. They do that through selling. Yeah. And so uh, if a client asks me to write something 
uh, a sales page, let's say, and that sales page converts at like 10%, meaning 10% of people who read it buy, and they never have to change it, I can very clearly, uh, I can fairly clearly demonstrate and communicate my value to the company and yeah. why they should keep paying me. Really you should pay me. Yeah. yeah, you should pay me because when you pay me uh, $4,000 to write a sales page for you, that sales page is going to make $4,000 in the first month. It's going to make $4,000 in the next month. Now you just got a 200% ROI. It's going to make $4,000 in the following month. And you're, and it's, I call it infinite ROI because as long as the, the company is bringing in generating leads and this is a true problem that can solve uh, that could be uh, it's a true solution to a problem that their leads have. It's always going to sell yeah. until the problem changes. And then you just replace it with a new product and new copy. Yeah. But it's, it's infinite ROI, man. Like it. And so I get on like Reddit because I knew nothing about copywriting when I started, I knew nothing. I, I was told to read some books. So I read those books and then I was like, well, where do these copywriters go? So I went on Reddit these fucking Redditors are talking about SEO copy and, oh yeah, I'm trying to be an SEO copywriter. I'm trying to be a content copywriter. I'm like, great. Have fun communicating your value to a business when they're saying they're going to get rid of you because money is tight. Right. How yeah. can you communicate your value as an SEO? Well, you know, as an SEO content or SEO copywriter, what they'll say, well, my value can be communicated by saying that um, this page which used the seo keywords that i uh put in there you know was viewed had this many impressions and was clicked this many times great how much of that converted to a sale if you can't communicate yeah. that it converted to a sale you don't matter dude because yeah. like that's the only thing that matters to these companies so yeah, if you can't quantify it um all exactly. they care about are the numbers like that's well uh, they can you know they can quantify it into clicks and impressions and likes and shares but, but you can't sales. quantify that to sales like yeah. you can if you use tracking links and that's like that's a thing you know it's like if you're doing seo copy for a blog page a blog post that's intended to sell let's say it's like a sales page disguised as a blog post and that's a tactic of yours then yes you can communicate your value right. but that's not what these seo content or SEO copywriters are talking about. That's not what these content copywriters are talking about. They want to write, they want to get paid. I, I did this too while I was at the corporation. I got paid to write about psychedelics. Okay. Well, when the company was having hard times, they fired all the writers, yeah. me included, you know? So it's like, yeah. if I was writing sales pages for them, it would be much harder for them to fire me and I could keep making money. Yeah, you're so, way more value to them. Exactly. So, you know, everyone's talking about this, this big recession that we're heading into. And everyone's talking about, you know, is it a recession? Is it a depression? And there's a lot of argument, but the truth or the fact is, is that people are scared about the recession. People are scared for their jobs. It's so funny, man. I, I met up with my old boss. Uh, this is all going to tie in. Okay. I met up with my old boss in Seattle. It's the first time I ever met her in person. She lives on the East coast. And, um, and we were talking, she left the job that we were at to take a higher paying job. Yeah. Uh, doing the same thing at a smaller company. We meet up and she's telling me, she's like, yeah, I'm afraid for my job. We just laid off 80 people and they were all the people I hired. So like, if they decide to keep going, like I'm next yeah. because I'm low on the totem pole now. They got rid of all the people that were below me on the totem pole. Yeah, exactly. I'm next. 
Yeah. And she's like, and she's like, so I'm, I'm scared. And I was like, my business is recession proof, dude. I make people money. You can't fire someone that makes you money unless you can reliably make yourself the same amount of money, you know, and you are okay with spending that time doing it. Yeah. And so this is, um, my business is shifting a bit. I, I do, I started out as a service provider providing copy to people and I'm still doing that. Um, but I'm also starting to bring people in and train them in my method of copywriting. And this is the number one thing that I emphasize. Like if they want to, if they want to be my employee and work for me, that's cool. If they want to start their own copywriting business, that's cool too. If they're a business owner that wants to learn how to write their own copy, that's cool too. The thing that I'm going to pretty much beat into their minds through, or that I do beat into their minds throughout this whole training process is you are going to learn how to write copy that actually equals money. Right. You're going to write copy that actually sells. And, and it's cool because like I do a lot of what's called editorial copy, which is um, copy that is intentionally, it's intentional written material to build relationships because you need to have a relationship with someone before they buy from you because buying is a commitment. Sure. Yeah. Buying is taking risk. And they're not going to take risk on someone they don't trust. So you got to build rapid trust with them. And so uh, I do a lot of editorial content and I make a lot of sales just from editorial content. It's not even designed to sell. It just happens to sell because it builds trust. Yeah, that, that's incredible. And I, I love, um, like you sound so passionate about talking about this now that it's something that like, I feel like it just completely ties into all your experiences that you've kind of had in your life into this this sort of you know this next chapter of your life um do do you think like as a now you know obviously as a business owner like that sense of ownership is um is maybe something that you're missing as well like when you're just part of the the network or the company and the corporation you know you do your your small bit but there's no real ownership there right It, it was i mean i was taking ownership of those things and that was probably like at, at the company. And that's probably my problem too. Okay. Because yeah. you take ownership for something that you have no ownership over. Sure. And that doesn't impact your life later. Right. Yeah. Which is kind of an interesting thing. Like, cause I really like Jocko Willink and he talks about extreme ownership, extreme ownership Yeah. but it's also like, sure. You can take extreme ownership at your corporation, but the ROI on that is shit. You yeah. know, you're yeah. going to give a lot and you're not going to get that much. No. With, Owning my own business, I thought I was going to, I thought it was going to be scary. It's actually not for me. It's actually like, it's exciting. Um, more than anything else, it's liberating. Yeah. And so this was a, an unintended consequence of starting my own business and quitting my job. I quit my job before, I quit my job because I realized the amount of time I'm putting in right now has got my side income with this business to almost match my main income from the, from the company. And I was only working like five to 10 hours a week. And I was like, so if I work 15 to 20 hours a week and I'm doing, I'm focused on the right things, I could double my normal income. And yeah. so like, I took where, that, where does it end? Like, you know, yeah, like, exactly. How do you scale this? So I took the risk and I said, okay, I could do that. 
And then within six months, I made more money than I've ever made working for someone else. I had, dude, I, I, the first, uh, the first goal, which was such a, it was so funny looking back on it, it was such an amorphous goal. But the goal when I started the business is like, I'd really like to make $10,000 in one month. And I did it. Yeah. And then I was like, that wasn't enough. Like, <laughs> that was, it was amazing to, to make 10 K in a month, but I was like, it was so easy to do that. And I was like, so I could make a lot more. And, and then I got real serious with plotting out the financial path. And now I have a path to multi-million dollars and that by the time, so I'm 32 right now, and I have plotted out a path to a multi-million dollar company by the age of 36 to think that I could make over a million dollars in my thirties is like, it was, un dude, it was unimaginable. It's in fact, it's so real. It's kind of intimidating. Is that, that fear of success? That fear of success. Yeah. Because the success is so real. I've it's already tasted tangible. it. It's tangible. I defined one goal. I hit it On to the next one, I suppose. And I could be just as loose with it like I was with that first goal because I was like, I want to make 10K in a month. And I never plotted any in like intentional strategy on how to get there. Yeah. I just, I had good coaching along the way and I happened to make connections and I happened to do, a, be good at my job, I suppose. And one month it all just kind of culminated and, and that happened. And, uh, the difference is now is like when I got serious about it, I plotted down my projected growth. And so I'm seeing uh, by the end of this year, it should be 171 at minimum, 171% increase from last year's revenue, which is like insane. And then I set that up on a growth pattern into the next uh, eight years or so. Yeah. And I don't know if I'll hit that $14 million. <laughs> like, there's one because you know the Fibonacci sequence, the way that it, it goes up and up exponentially. So one of the years is like 14 million. I was like, I don't know about that. Like my market cap might be smaller than that, but like these other ones seem actually doable. Yeah. Uh, and I have a path forward with that. So it's really exciting. My wife is like ecstatic because I, I was the kid, dude, I was the kid where the teachers described as uh, oh, he has so much potential. If only he would apply himself. Apply himself. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And my interest, I'm interested in copywriting. I'm interested in, in doing new things and learning new things. Copywriting lets me do that, which is pretty cool. I learn a lot of shit. You know, I work with like all kinds of different, yeah, I've worked with like hypnotists, which was something I knew nothing about before. And I always thought it was bullshit, but yeah. now I'm like, oh, there's actual like scientific backing to the idea of hypnosis and self-hypnosis, which is pretty cool. Um, which is pretty much all mindset work is really just self-hypnosis. Yeah, it's, 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 it's like mind hacking. Like, yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah. Uh, worked with like interrogators and CIA and all this stuff. And it's like, dude, That's it's wild. Nuts. Yeah, what a wild, yeah. wonderful world out there. Yeah, and then speaking <laughs> of the CIA, so obviously um, the, the way that I got in touch with you was through LinkedIn, but it was a recommendation from, from Andrew uh, Bustamante, um, who was like, you need to get in touch with will he's awesome <laughs> and i was like all right sent you a message and then like yeah or i think yeah i just connected with you and you sent me a message and i was yeah. like this is ace um no that's amazing so, but what's like 
and I th- we should probably wrap this up because we're going to like nearly three hours now. But what's the um, you know, as a as a copywriter and and as a successful copywriter, what's the thing that you think you know sets you apart, or or maybe not apart, but what's brought you the success? Because you I remember you mentioned you know there are not every copywriter is a successful copywriter, obviously. Um, what's what are the differences between you know what you're doing with maybe yeah. what the rest of the industry is doing, if you will? Yeah. Um, well, you nailed one of them, which was psychology. I I use a lot of psych. I majored in psychology and I worked in the field, and yeah. so I have that on my mind a lot. And as we talked, like I get kind of philosophical and psychological thinking about things, but I've also been uh, luckily coached to be very operational as well. Like I love philosophy, but not all philosophy is actionable. Philosophy very much exists yeah. in the mind, right? And so what can we take from psychology and, and turn it into action? And that's a big thing that I do with uh, with copywriting. So uh, the way from the the unique way that I identify avatars. So we saw this with one of my clients. Um, the avatar, just to define it, is the ideal customer that you're selling to, right? Okay. And so, uh, or you could say the avatar is whoever you're selling to. But I say if you're, it's important to know who you're selling to. Some people try to appeal to everyone, and that's a, a big marketing faux pas uh, because if you're if you're trying to sell to everyone you're selling to no one. Yeah. Uh, So you actually need to be very intentionally discriminatory. You need to be, that's the dirty word that no one likes to use, but it's the truth. You need to call out and attract the people that will buy from you and utterly repulse, actually ideally completely fly under the radar of the people who won't buy from you or who you don't want to sell to. Yeah. Um, Too many businesses will, well, it's a natural part of the business growth that we all start out. Like I will sell to whoever will buy because I need revenue. I need cash flow. Uh, But you get to a point where like you have a client list of a bunch of dipshits that you don't want to sell to. And we all have an idea of like, who do I want? Like, who do I want to hang out with? Like who, who do I want to, because selling is, it's an intimate thing, man. Like people don't think of it this way, Uh, but selling is an intimate thing. Like these are the people that are going to sustain your business and you're going to, in a way, answer to them and they're going to answer to you. So like, who do you want to be bothered by? Yeah. And that's how we we identify the avatar starting from there. And we go fucking deep, dude. Like, what's the first thing that they think of when they wake up in the morning? You yeah. know, no one thinks about that, man. And that's a difficult exercise. It's a very mentally exhausting exercise to go through to like truly try to understand what someone thinks when they wake up in the morning, someone who you've never met. Um, so we get into this ident- avatar identification process. I try to do it with all of my clients if they care about making money at least. And uh, so just to give an example of like the power of this process, we did a, an analysis, like a split A-B test in a way where we compared email revenue before and after doing this avatar within a set time frame, same amount of emails, et cetera, to the same list of people. Yeah. And we saw a 120, 121% increase in revenue after doing the avatar exercise, after pointing out exactly who we are talking to and only talking to that person. That was super powerful. I mean, and, and it, it all makes sense. And so my, my maybe follow-up question is, 
are people not doing that because they're lazy or just because there's no i just don't of, think they know they okay yeah yeah i just don't think they know and if okay so one of my favorite things to learn about and one of my favorite things on the planet is cognitive bias another i guess that could be a controversial statement because there's all this talk of unconscious bias and oh it's so terrible okay i'm sorry to break any of these people's bubbles cognitive bias is a very real thing yes that's true it's a very natural thing and it's not going to go away yeah there's no amount of work uh that we can do to erase cognitive bias cognitive bias is necessary to our survival it's an evolutionary trait right so our brains are these giant computers that process information and if you look around you and you try to see everything in the form of like data it's a lot of fucking data out there it's an oh like overwhelming amount of data is an understatement and that's just on our planet now like multiply that by an infinite universe right it's infinitely overwhelming yeah cognitive bias is what allows us cognitive bias and discrimination is what allows and i guess you could say discrimination is a form of cognitive bias but it allows us to process the world and not fucking die of being overwhelmed by yeah, it. yeah right? exactly right yeah like if anyone's ever done mushrooms that like removes this sort of cognitive bias and opens you opens you up to the data of the world and it is overwhelming you cannot live your life like that yeah i mean it's like awesome for the four hours that it lasts yeah but But, like yeah you can't you can't uh yeah go through your daily life i mean it's like if we want just the most simplistic term is like you you know that when you go to mcdonald's you're not going to get a michelin star restaurant meal you know like if you had to process every single thing new every single time we just wouldn't get anywhere and it's just can't yeah it's not actionable right we are as we're a species of action like from from the days in the savannah man standing up you know to see over the grass like that's action so uh, i love cognitive bias and we all engage in cognitive bias the interesting thing about it is we don't think about it you know we don't like why do we end up in echo chambers we can see that we end up in echo chambers because of confirmation bias but like if you've ever found yourself in an echo chamber it feels very natural getting there in the first place and it isn't until you realize like oh i'm in an echo chamber i should probably like diversify what i'm listening to right you just don't notice it happening you're just doing it constantly and so uh i think that that when i talk when i talk with other copywriters or i talk with other marketers I don't really think about this. And if they do think about it, they think of like kind of like confirmation bias. Sure, they think of that, but they don't think about how do you strategically and actionably bake in all the major biases that your avatar engages in and use that as a way to amplify their trust of you. You know, so that it's a very, it's a very psychological strategic thing that i do and that i work with my clients to do yeah um and i don't it, know man it, it's it like to, to me it sounds like th- there's a lot of work that goes in there like there's this it sounds like there's a lot of legwork there's there's like you said the psychology involved there's tactics there's the actual skill and the skill set of copywriting itself mm-hmm. where i'm like maybe people aren't successful because it's just that's just a lot of work like you know people yeah, don't want to put could- in the work it could be that. So, um, and, and it, it might seem easy to you, but you're, you know, you're passionate about it and it's what you enjoy as opposed to the ISFJ folk who 
our copywriters who go, um, I just want to work for a big copywriting company. Just like- so here's the thing though, man, it can be systematized for the ISFJs. I don't, the ISFJ is not my, my target yeah. like audience when it comes to sure. retail sales, like the people that I want to sell to, it's not the ISFJs, but the ISFJs like this can be systematized for them to follow step-by-step step and it'll actually work. Like yeah. I'm, I'm, currently building out a training program, which will eventually be packaged up as a digital copywriting training program. That's nothing new, man. Like a lot of these major copywriters do that. Um, But I plan on systematizing this method, the future copy method. I don't know. I don't know if that's going to be what it's called, but like the future copy method will be systematized and given uh, to people who want to learn how to do it because it is powerful. Like we see that already, like, and I'm, I'm super lucky that I am connected. Like I'm connected with this marketing agency that is doing insanely innovative things. And we're collaborating to bake what I'm doing with what they're doing together to make basic, basically an infinite ROI lead generation, like full system that just brings people in, builds a rapid relationship with them, sells them, helps them solve their problems. And like, if we're doing it right, it can be scaled up nearly infinitely. So like any any type of uh, business that sells, you know, no matter how small or big they are. Um, Ultimately, what I am passionate about though, is securing my own freedom. And I don't think for all the the humming and hawing about freedom in our country and Western countries and across the world, true freedom is financial freedom. Yeah. Money is the only thing that can, here's the thing. This is the biggest lesson I've gotten out of this. And if anyone has heard, like, listen to this, like, and gets one thing out of this, this is what they should get out of it. Uh, If they're anything like me, if you're anything like me, I've learned that I just want to be the master of my own universe. I don't like other people telling me what to do. I don't like other people telling me how I can use my time. When I quit the corporation, the most surprising feeling and realization I had was how much anxiety, subtle, non-unconscious anxiety I had about asking for time off. Yeah. And when I thought about that, I was like, time is the only resource that you can never get back. If you lose all your money, you can make more money. If you lose all your food, you can go hunt. You can fucking kill a rat and eat a rat. Like you can get every other resource. Every other resource is is replenishable. Time is the only resource that's not replenishable. And in our free societies, I have nothing wrong with the system. The system works. The system has created amazing abundance for people. And it has created the opportunity for entrepreneurs to do great things for themselves and for the world. So I have nothing against the system. We're in it. But the system is not free. You trade your resources to be complacent, to be comfortable. Let's say complacent is a bit of a dirty word. Our system is set up to where you trade your resources to be comfortable. 
And that's what's scary about true freedom is you have to take care of yourself. So I traded comfort. I traded the company paying me a regular salary, health insurance, comfort, so that I could have my time back. What are you if you can't control your own time, man? Like you're someone else. You're someone else's. I don't like that's the way I see it. And it I'm still having a hard time processing the difference between like true slavery where you are physically owned and this sort of people called it wage slavery. And I don't think I don't think it's fair to completely compare it to slavery at all. There is a difference, but there is something very real about the fact that if you don't own your own time, you are not the one in control. If you own your own, because like I said, man, dude, that's like, that's like owning a diamond mine. If you own your own time, you own like the most valuable resource there is. You are in control, you know, and you can allocate your time in a way that multiplies your income. You can allocate in a way where you squander your life, but you get to choose how to allocate it. And so that's like, if there's one message I could send to people, it is, if you want to be the master of your own universe, if you don't want to be owned by other people, you need to own your own time. And the way that I figured out how to do that was with copywriting and entrepreneurship. Copywriting is the easiest way for me to own my own time because it's an easy system to follow and it sells and people love you when you make their money and yeah. they'll pay you more money for it, you know? So that's, that's the way I kind of look at it. That's why I'm so passionate about it because it is directly tied to my freedom. <laughs> no, that's, that's amazing. And um, I almost sort of want to end the podcast there. Cause that's like the perfect way to cap it. I think, yeah. Like um, own your fucking time people. <laughs> yeah. Own it, man. Have extreme ownership over your time. <laughs> there we go. Message yeah. Jocko and tell him to just uh, amend that. No, oh, amazing, so. man. Dude, I could uh, speak to you for another three hours, but uh, <laughs> let's let's cap it off here, and then okay. you know potentially touch touch base maybe down the down the track for another episode and and see wh- where where you've gotten you know within within that time period. But um, yeah, how can people find you? Um, what's uh, wh- where where can they interact with you? That sort of thing. Yeah, so go to futurecopywriting.com. That's it. It's, the website is crap. So I apologize ahead of time. We're working on it. We're working on it. full rebrand. And right now the website is tailored to uh, the service providing aspect of my business, which is, so it's kind of tailored to clients looking for a copywriter, but um, that is not the direction the business is going. It's going in both ways. So whether you are looking to learn about copywriting or uh, you know you just want to get good content on how to be a better copywriter, either for your business or you want to work for someone else, whatever, go to futurecopywriting.com, sign up for the newsletter, whatever it is, we got something for you there. Perfect. And I'll put the, uh, the note, the website and the, the show link, um, show okay. notes below. Awesome, um, man. Dude, thank you so much, folks. Um, own your time, own your life. Well, that's, I'll cap it off with that. Awesome. Thanks, Ilya. Thank you so much, man. Cheers. 